so the uh, the theater that uh, the art theater that's in my hometown, mm-hmm. they because so the, basically this this uh, like gas station kind of place, uh, what yeah. you, uh, convenience store, they purchased the actual cocaine bear, like the real bear, and they stuffed it in Kentucky. Wow! So you can go to this convenience store and buy like merch and stuff. But the Kentucky Theater, the theater in my hometown, they basically, I guess they rented it from them for the opening weekend of Cocaine yeah. Bear. So people were going in and like taking pictures with the bear. Wow. Yeah. So they, but they have it in their store like year round. Did it take place in Kentucky? No, no, no. It took, I think it happened in Georgia, but they somehow they, but they someone was somehow like, they we procured buy the, that bear. Yeah, it stuffed it. Well, I mean, I think somebody stuffed it after it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the origin of the, the stuffing, but they own the stuffed. Cocaine. They own the stuff, cocaine bear, <laughs> and, and then the Kentucky Theater borrowed it for the opening weekend, so, so people were taking it, photos. It definitely was a true story. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, but I mean, but the true story is the bear died from e- ingesting that much cocaine. Like it didn't attack anybody; it just died from ingesting that much cocaine. Uh, <laughs> movies. When they cut it open, they just found like bricks upon. Brick. Oh my. God. <laughs> uh, well, I think we're supposed to get a sequel to Cocaine Bear. Really? I mean, I hope it's like another animal. I heard, yeah, I heard the joke was that Elizabeth Banks, who did it, was like, I would love like a different animal. Well, I saw Asylum is already hopping on like Meth Gator or something like that. Oh my God. Yeah, you knew they were already jumping on that train. They probably had that in the work, like already in the can before it even came out. Let's see. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Attack of the Meth Gator. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, inspired by, it's a mock, a mockbuster of the film Cocaine Bear. (laughs) I mean, Mockbusters. That's how they didn't get away know, with that. Didn't know that was a term. Well, that's how Asylum... Now. I think that's what they, Asylum's whole genre, right? Is is, yeah. is Mockbusters. They, that's how they get away with it. Titanic 2. <laughs> the iceberg strikes back. Um, did you see Cocaine Bear? In, in no, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I've heard mixed things. But I, yeah. I feel like that's that'd be a good one to watch on streaming. I don't yeah. know if I want to rush to, to see it. Oh, wow. Wow. It's interesting enough, uh, the two guys... Uh, radio silence or ma- uh, the two guys. Yeah, they were supposed to do that. They were supposed yeah. to do can- yeah. cocaine bear. Yeah, but then they they, they wanted did. to focus on scream. Scream. They did scream five instead. Yeah. So I listened to I was listening to Kermode's review of Scream Six, and he did not care for Scream Six. Yeah. But I don't think he cared for Five Cream either. <laughs> but but he uh, but he he mentioned that, and I was like, oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember. I think he might have liked Cocaine Bear. I don't remember. Yeah. So we. He did not care for Scream Six at all. Yeah, we saw Scream, Scream yeah. Six in theaters recently. Yeah. We saw Star Wars. We saw time. Star Wars and A New Hope yeah. in theaters as well. And and David has a something to admit on the podcast. Well, don't say it like that. Like, they're never going to trust my opinion again. Okay, so here's the thing. I was like, I think, I think he doesn't like Star Wars. No, okay, no, okay, it's okay, not okay. true. That is not true. They're in enjoyable films, and A New Hope is in a, a very good movie, and mm-hmm. and you know it tells the hero's tale very well, uh, hero's journey very well. But I. I don't know. There's just something about it that's never clicked with me. You know, I yeah. mean, like, I, like I, can, I can enjoy it. I just don't think I'm, I've ever been blown away. And I was hoping seeing it on the big screen would finally like knock my socks off and, and mm-hmm. I finally connect with it like everybody else does. But yeah. I still, you know, I, I guess it's just something something's missing for me. Yeah. You know, and I, I get that's a personal thing. It's not. I mean, nothing against the movie. Like I said, it's very effective in what it's doing. And we're not a Star Wars podcast and we don't usually talk about Star Wars uh, on here, but we'll bring it up here. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's it's I mean. The cliche answer is like Empire is the best one. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but like we were talking about, I think I think I'm just more into like the heady sci-fi as opposed to like the adventure sci-fi. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's, why, but but again, I, I love the world building and I love all that. I just I don't know. There's just something mm-hmm. about it that has never clicked with me. But, but I, man, I love him. I, man, I do like him. Like. Harrison Ford and A New Hope. Yeah. Like, oh no, he carries the movie. Anthony Daniels is great, and I think John Williams' score obviously. Is, he's the second yeah. most charismatic carpenter behind Jesus, is what I say. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford. 
That's fair. Like, That's fair. like he, no, but like you do watch like that movie stuff. Yeah, you watch that. That's like instantaneous. Like, yeah, it's yeah, ins- it's yeah. it's insane when he kind of comes. Didn't he kind of have to fight for that role a little bit? Yeah, yeah he, well, because yeah. George didn't want to. George Lucas didn't want to cast him because he'd already been American Graffiti, and Lucas was very hell bent on. I just want to cast unknowns. Yeah. Um, and he went with Ford, I think, because they realized that no one else could do it. It's funny. Two of Ford's biggest roles, he almost didn't get because yeah. Lucas was like, Tom I've Se- already used him before. Wasn't I don't want to use him Selleck again. Was Tom Selleck going to be? Tom Selleck was going to be Jones? Was Indiana Jones, yes. Cause, and there's like a little snippet of him. Oh, they did like test screenings. They, like, they, sorry, did, screen they test, did a screen test, test of it. Um, Interesting. Uh, of cracking the whip or what was he doing? Um, some dialogue? Some, yeah, some, some, uh, um, it was, it was him and Sean Young is what it was. Sean okay. Young from Blade Runner. Yeah, and yeah. Sean Young just missed it. Like, Sean Young could have been bigger. She was, like, supposed to be Vicky Vale in Batman, the first one, 89. Mm. Uh, got pregnant, so she had to drop out. Tried to get Catwoman <laughs> by dressing up as Catwoman and showing up to Tim Burton's office. I feel like, but of all she the didn't direct- get it. yeah, but I feel like of all the directors that would work with that would be alleged. Big. Allegedly, he hid under his desk and said he wasn't there. <laughs> is what I is what I think they yeah, that but was said. Also, I can't I can't imagine anybody but Pfeiffer in, the, in that in that in that specific iteration of yeah. Like, no, yeah. well, F- Michelle Pfeiffer steals yeah. that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's it's there's movies I I go back to and revisit. And we we did Batman Returns on, on the show before, and that was when like I like really saw how great Michelle Pfeiffer is. And I think I do that a lot with this show is that when I go back and re- re- revisit something, same thing with The Shining, where I gain more appreciation for like Shelley Duvall's performance yeah, in that yeah. movie, or I gain Pfeiffer's performance. Again, Star Wars, I gain more appreciation for, for Ford of just like how electric he is. Yeah. And, and also he's saying really goofy dialogue, but he's saying yeah, it so charismatically. Yeah. You're like, and Fisher, Fisher yeah. is too. Yeah. I mean, they're all saying, hokey. yeah, I mean, that's kind of, the, I get it. I, like, I think Fisher has some of the best lines in the movie. Yeah. Like, come on. Uh, and, 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 and to the, into the shoot fly boy or whatever. She yeah. Says. Once, once it, like once the group gets together, I think it really picks up. I, I think, agree. I think the first half just really, I mean, I get it. They had to set the rules and maybe it's just, I've seen this movie so many damn times. I know all the, you know, I know it, the, all the world building, you know, leading up to it. So maybe that's a piece of it, but yeah. uh, you know, it's just like it takes forever to get into the you know to get into the the actual like excitement. <laughs> I disagree. I think I, I mean well, I I think that op- I thought the opening of the of of a new hope again. I don't want to spend too much time analyzing Star Wars in this podcast, <laughs> but the opening it's it's like it it goes like it's it. That well, okay, yeah, that's fair. The first being, act is efficient. being being yeah. being in theaters and, and listening to. It, I was like, wow, this is this is like kind of intense. Like it's almost like overwhelming. Yeah. And you got, I got, I kept thinking, like, what, what is the mindset when this movie comes out? Like, like, what are you thinking when you have all these like space explosions in the yeah. opening, and the sound is really pumping, and a dude in a black armored night suit is like walking in, mm-hmm. and some robots are spinning around, and it's like, again, we we follow Anthony Daniels to see three people for like twenty five minutes in that movie. And right. It's kind of crazy to think that he holds it so well. Um, but yeah, that stuff we've seen in theaters of, of, of late. But enough about that. We're talking about movies on movies today. I'm Brandon Sparks. I'm David Glenn, the fourth. The fourth. Don't forget that. Yeah, you got to have that IV. And, and we're the talking suffix. about, what we've been talking about all month is movies on movies. Yeah. Um, as Good we said, topic. Hollywood, well, in this case, today's movie is not a Hollywood movie, but Hollywood, or filmmakers and Hollywood and movie people love movies about themselves and 
not to say that we artists can be selfish, but artists can be selfish and self-indulgent and self-indulgent. <laughs> it happens all the time. And sometimes you get some masterpieces yeah. and it works so well. And then sometimes you don't. Yeah. Well, sometimes they go so far, far up their own ass. But uh, my, my favorite professor in undergrad would always say, if you're going to be self-indulgent, you just got to push it all the way. You can't yeah. just like, you can't like dip your toe in. Like if you're just going to be, if you're going to be self-indulgent, go all the way and just, yeah. and, and own it, own it. And I think this movie today yeah. does that. And I think, I think sets the template for these type of movies oh, is, is yeah. the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think everyone is is following in the footsteps of Fellini's Eight and a Half mm-hmm. after this movie. Um, but what we talked about this month so far with movies on movies, talking about that, but that Hollywood is really obsessed with itself. And there's a few things you, you can do with these films is that you can be the romanticized version of making movies and and have like kind of a darker story but then at the end it's like oh my god we have to make movies or whatever like i think empire of light recently did that where it was like kind of like a depressing story but yeah. ends with like but there's movies it was like it was, um, from the trailer it looks like that's like toby jones whole character is just yes, yes. on the projection i mean it's funny it's yeah. funny with the failments in the empire yeah. of light where you watch that in theaters and in both trailers they have someone going like like a film is twenty four f- frames a second, <laughs> and like because I think it's Paul Dano and Veilman saying it to right. to uh, to y- Sam young, young Sammy, young, young but, Sammy. but he's uh, but but the funny thing about that is Dano's like explanation is is very like technical and like yeah. uh, and, you know because he has the engineer's yes. mindset, uh, so that, it, that's funny to me the way he like introduces a film to to young yeah to young yeah <laughs> well I was thinking with that movie is like yeah. it's it's. Uh, uh, Mitzi or uh, Mitzi is the is the uh, Michelle Williams character yeah. is the artist and creative right. and she even has she, that line it's the art in this family it's the artist versus the a scientist yeah scientist and that's always the way it's been like there was that great reveal during like inside inside the actor studio where um, James Lipton asked the question asked Spielberg the question about in Close Encounters uh, the aliens and the humans communicate by them using a computer to make music and Lipton's like, so this is kind of like your, your, it's like your way of showing like your mom and dad getting together. And Spielberg goes, I never thought about that until Whoa. you just said that. Wow. What <laughs> a goes, meeting, bro. He's like, that is my, he goes, you're right. That is my parents. And he goes, and, and it's like 20 years after that movie, he's yeah. like, Oh my God, you're right. That was me talking about my parents. That's pretty wild. Um, but yeah, these movies will, it could be the romanticized version or it could be the cynical version, like say a Babylon or a Sunset Boulevard, uh, where it's the, what the industry makes someone and what they can t- turn into the underbelly of it all. Like, is it all worth it is the question. Mm. And through a lot of these movies, even the different kind of subgenres of this subgenre have that running theme of, is it all worth it at the end of the day? Is it all, is it worth ruining relationships uh or or cutting your yourself off from the rest of the world sometimes yeah I mean, what do you have to trade to chase yeah. the stream and yeah. even even in living in oblivion where they're making yeah. where it's the subgenre of just making an actual movie yeah. you're like is this all worth it is it worth going through the insanity every day the chaos right. every day and i and i watch to make this work I, have you seen that documentary about altman I haven't. So they interview one of his kids, and this uh-huh. was like one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever heard because he was just like, yeah, he didn't care about us. Like he, his movies were was all he cared about. Yeah, and it's like, damn, you like you think about that trade off. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, there are a lot of directors that will bring their kids on set. Like, like Coppola was famous for yeah. that and that kind of thing. But 
you know, I, I, I just never really had thought about that until I saw that doc. Um, I mean, hearing that from his perspective, like he was genuinely hurt. Yeah. I mean, all my father's legacy is is his filmography. It's not, you know. And that's the big thing is that is, is your legacy, your children, your actual children, or is it the movies you make? And that's kind of the, the art or the, or your work, not just movies, but your work. And that's the artist's dilemma where some people want the immortality aspect of it in some way when some people live by their children, people they, they leave behind. Um, but that's just the artist and the non-artist yeah. discussing it. And I'm not saying which one is right or whatever. I think you decide on what you want to be. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, and I think with today's movie, Eight and a Half... It kind of touches on both sides of it. It touches yeah. on both sides yeah. of this. It shows what you will lose, and then, but also it, it sympathizes with the filmmaker who wants to tell something yeah. honest at the end of the day. Right, and he's kind of out of his, out of his depth almost. <laughs> he's out of his depth, yeah. So... We're talking about eight and a half today. So, David, you picked this movie. You've yeah. written this episode. So let's so let's jump into this. Sure, what? sure. So, uh, so we'll go over a description. I have two descriptions: one that I yeah. wrote, and then one that's from a Playboy interview from 1966. So I'll do the one I, I wrote first. It says uh, eight and a half stars Marcello Mastrioni. I also want to uh, mention that I will probably butcher some of these Italian names, but um, you know, and the I irony apolo- is, I apologize as well. Yeah, but the irony is, I, I'm learning. You're Italian. learning Italian, yeah, David. I'm Duolingo, but. Uh, Oftentimes, I get frustrated because my subtle country accent will get in the way of my pronunciations. Marcelo Marciani. <laughs> but anyways, okay, I always feel like um, Aldo Rain in, uh, in, uh, in Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> Arrivederci. Okay. Arrivederci. All right. Uh, so yeah, anyways, eight and a half stars Marcello Mastrioni as Guido, a film director mm-hmm. who is dealing with an ailment and is sent to a resort uh, to rest. But he's bothered by his production team as well as the various women in his life mm-hmm. and his childhood memories and fantasies as he attempts to make another film of which he has no idea what he's making. Um, so Guido is sort of a stand-in for the actual co-writer, director, mm-hmm. the famed Italian filmmaker, the maestro, Federico yeah. Fellini. Um, and then this is the description from that Playboy interview, which I will reference quite a bit um, throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Guido is a self-searching 43-year-old Italian movie director with graying temples. The storyline is a highly impressionistic mosaic of larger-than-life memories, self-indulgent fantasies, bizarre dreams, and idealized visions that somehow coalesce into a coherent, deeply insightful, and introspective spiritual autobiography. At the end of the film, Guido finally extricates himself from the self-created labyrinth of irrational guilts, fears, hopes, and expectations that has immobilized him and learns to accept himself as he is, not as he might wish he were or hoped mm-hmm. he might have been. Perfect summary. It's perfect summary. <laughs> and then I also movie. love this quote Probably from um, on the uh, the Blu-ray release, which we both watched, uh, mm-hmm. the Criterion Blu-ray release. It's also on the Criterion channel. Yeah. Uh, it's called The Last Sequence, so it, uh, I'll get into that more later. Okay. But there's a quote from, from it that says, it's not a film to understand, but a film to feel. And that mm-hmm. always reminded me of the, the tenant quote. Don't try yeah. to understand it. Uh, try to feel it. <laughs> Just feel it's it. It's all vibes, baby. It's all vibes here. Um, but I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I, I, yeah. I, I, think, I think you can. I, I think there's a lot to unpack, but I think yeah. that's kind of the fun of it. Um, but yeah, so the film also stars Anik, I, and I, I have no idea how to pronounce her name, so I'm sorry. Uh, Anoik uh, Amy as yeah. his wife Louisa. Ami, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Ami, yeah, okay. And then there's a slew of heavy hitters for the various other women in his life. We have Sandra Milo, who plays Carla, his mistress. Yeah. Barbara Steele, who plays the young fiance Gloria of Guido's best friend, Mario Mesabota. I love when he goes, Mesabota, like from across the. <laughs> so. <laughs> chases him down. Tangent on here. I've yeah. met, I met Barbara Steele before. Oh, no way. She came in the video store and. She was an older woman, and she was. Uh, I'm not saying she was difficult, but it was. It was like she was very. Uh, she, was she a Karen? No, she wasn't Karen. She was. She was. She was. I guess eccentric is the word. Mm. Very, very like 
like like not, her performance. Yeah, not <laughs> la- not loud, but like it, it was just it very like she was a personality is, uh-huh. is is how how to describe it. And my buddy Matt at the time, uh, he was working and and she was just getting a movie there and and uh, he was like, "What's the name? What's the name?" And she, she was start, he was setting up. I think she was seven count there. And he's and she's like Barbara Steele, and Matt just goes, "The Barbara Steele," <laughs> and she's like, "It's almost like the one and only or whatever she said." And he's just like, "Oh my god, like you're a legend!" And I had just seen her in like the Pit and the Pendulum, uh, Roger Corman, the Roger yeah. Corman one, and I had known a little bit about her. And she, but she was nice. And I think he gave her a movie for free and everything. He's like, "No, you you rent for free. You're Barbara Steele." Like, um. <laughs> And and she was yeah she was nice it was yeah she, I, I never saw her for that but she was in that one exchange super nice and still alive at eighty five years old and apparently, wow. apparently lives in Los Angeles to my knowledge wow um at this moment in time but That's, yeah super nice yeah um but yeah the That's rest interesting. Of she still had that energy though that, that she gives off she did <laughs> she had that energy yeah. to the yes yeah, surprising uh, but yeah so for the rest of the women there's Rosella uh, Falk who plays Rosella mm-hmm. she is uh, Luisa's friend and she seems to be like the only one outside of Luisa who can kind of see through Guido's various attempts at subversion because mm-hmm. she's a clairvoyant mm-hmm. um, and there's also Claudia Cardinale who plays Claudia uh, yep. who's a woman that Guido kind of has visions of throughout the movie it's, it's his quote unquote ideal, ideal woman yeah. both for the film and like for himself yeah um, but she doesn't really like live up to these visions in the end mm-hmm. so uh, and then the screenplay or as the Italians call it the scenario yeah. was co-written by Fellini Tullio Pinelli Ennio Flaoni yeah. and Brunello Brunello Rondi um, yeah, and this all three is like of those good, guys. bad, and the ugly all over again. Yeah, but all three of those guys <laughs> had worked with Fellini at various points, and mm-hmm. I, I will reference them quite a bit. Um, okay. The cinematographer was Gianni Di Venanzo, and he shot many classic uh, classic Italian films of this era, including Antonioni's La Notte and Le Eclisse, yeah. as well as Fellini's follow up to this, Juliet of the Spirits, which was Fellini's first feature length color film. Yeah, and then did a big deal on Mon- Madonna Street. That yeah. was a big. That was a big one. Uh, and then, yeah, so music by uh, Nino Rota, who would work with Fellini a lot, uh, mm-hmm. and they utilize many classical pieces for this film. Uh, and the film is currently streaming on Canopy, Criterion, HBO Max. It's available to rent on pretty much every platform. Yeah. And I guarantee it's going to be at your local library. Because yeah. if I had to guess, this is like one of Criterion's highest sell- selling Probably. releases, I'd, yeah. I'd assume. Um, but yeah, so we can get into like our, our initial... like. Um, like how did you? How did you? Yeah, how did you uh, come to this film, Brian? Um, I came to it a little bit later because it's a it's a foreign film. Uh, and well, as I've said before, in in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the foreign language f- film sections of our video stores were not packed. Yeah, but they had to have this, right? And they like, did have this, and, and, like, and, and I was going to buy this when my store that I worked at was closing. And someone beat me to it. Oh damn! And I was, and I was like, oh man! And I was there, and I was, I was gonna get this, and and the, and the owner's like, and the guy was like, oh, I, I can, I can, you don't have to, I don't have to take it. And the owner's like, no, he could have gotten it beforehand. You can take it. And I'm like, well, okay, thank you. So I had to find it another way. Um, and so I hadn't seen it yet. And so I don't think I saw it until I came here, uh, until I moved to L.A. and got it from Cinephile. Um, and then watched it once and then saw it again a few months ago when the new art played, when the new art played yeah. it. Was it for full, it was for a full week, right? Yeah. yeah. It was almost two years ago now. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It wasn't two years yeah. ago. It was for like 2022, 2021. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it was like around when they first opened back up. That can't be right. Yeah, Hold on. Yeah. I gotta look this up. Here we go. When, when did I watch this? 
Maybe you're right. I think it was like the, the, it was either the summer or like in the in the. I mean, it was summer. Let's see, because yeah. we also saw. Uh, it was September. Yeah, yeah it yeah. was September. So, but yeah, so I, I watched this in undergrad around mm-hmm. that. Again, I always reference this, but yeah, sophomore year was like when I really got into yeah. international cinema. So I watched this was one of the first I watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I, I I'd been wanting to revisit it for years, and my buddy gave me the Criterion Blu-ray that same year, uh, 2021. Um, and it hit me like when I really needed it. Cause I don't know if I ever told you this, but like I was at a moment where I was like kind of questioning if I still want to pursue this mm-hmm. and it like lit a fire in me again. So I have, I think that for that reason alone, it's really like yeah. uh, become a very personal film for me, uh, in this kind of era. And then a few months later I caught out the new art really when we were talking about it. And I think that's like one of the best cinema experiences I've ever had. Like it, it was amazing seeing that on the big screen. So yeah. I, I even wanted to catch it again, like during that week, yeah. I, I, I couldn't make time for it, but, uh, yeah. So if I ever see this on the big screen again, I mean, see it playing again, I'm going to probably catch it again because it's, yeah. it's fucking, I mean, I'm sorry. It's amazing you can to watch say, it. On. You can say fucking, it's fine. <laughs> I don't want you to have to give it the explicit tag though. Yeah, if you have children in the car, I might I, I might be hyperbolic. <laughs> might be hyperbolic. Here's the thing. Point. If you're listening to eight and a half, <laughs> I think you can deal with. Yeah. So anyways, I will I will catch it again. Uh-huh. Uh, but yes. Uh, yeah, I love this film. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we can get uh, we can move into the history. Okay, cool. Cool. So yeah. Because so, I know nothing about Yeah, so actually I I, I, I know I know like a little bit like why the title is the title, I think. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of it. Oh, cool. So I will go into, I think, because obviously this film dealing with like personal life of Fellini, I think it's important to get like a quick biography of him. Mm-hmm. When I say quick, I got a lot here, but I'm going to try to summarize it as much as I Two can. Two hours later. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyways, Fellini was born. He was the son of a wholesaler of wines and groceries in Rimini, which is a, a small beach town on the Adriatic coast of northern Italy. Mm-hmm. So as you can already tell, if you've seen eight and a half, a lot of that beach stuff is l- genuine yeah. memories of his, of Wait, his life. What year did you say? Uh, I, do, I do not have his birth date year. Okay, um, I want to find out. Because the reason why... 1920. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yes, no, because the war he's, does play. He's, he's grow, yeah, he's yeah. growing up in the World War yeah. II. Yeah. 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 No, no, that, that plays heavily. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but, and, and even though Fellini left the church at like a young age, uh, his religious upbringing would have a great bearing on his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he still considered himself a Catholic, but not a formal one. Uh, in 1965, he said, I go to church only when I have to shoot a scene in a church or for an aesthetic or nostalgic reason. Mm-hmm. For faith, you can go to a woman. Maybe that is more religious. And I was like, man, if that doesn't explain eight and a half, I don't know what does. Um, he's also quoted as saying, uh, in regards to uh, growing up in the church, uh, mm-hmm. that there are scars one carries for a long time, and it's hard to heal them and yeah. be reborn completely. Um, so I think I think that context is important for uh, you know dissecting this film because again, like, a lot of this uh, isn't like direct memories, but it is like things he had experienced, and he's like taken and put it into into film yeah. form, of course. But yeah, he would quit school at, at the age of twelve, and he joined the circus as an apprentice clown. Wow. But, but he came back home a few months later with his tail oh, between his legs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, but he would later join. But that a, like makes sense for like La Strada a oh, little for bit sure. now. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. He loved the circus. Yeah. yeah. Like from a young boy. So, um, but he would later join a vaudeville show right after his 17th birthday. Okay. And he would write comedy sketches and like follow them from town to town. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in September of 1939, he enrolled in law school at the University of Rome to appease his parents. But there is apparently no record of him ever actually attending a class. Um, and Check during. Out. And during the World War II, which, you know, follow mm-hmm. followed that, uh, he avoided the draft and he would write gags for local humor weeklies. Um, his first film credit as a gag man was Mario Matoli's The Pirate's Dream. Okay. And during Mussolini's reign, um, the country stopped importing American films and comics. So uh, Fellini worked as a cartoonist as well. Uh, and he was essentially pirating American comics. So he drew like Flash Gordon wow. and some others. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this obviously is, is going to be important because he would sketch many of his ideas. Yeah, later yeah. On. Um, 
And he met his wife, uh, Ju- Julieta Messina, during the war. Uh, she was an aspiring actress, and he was writing for radio at this point in the autumn of 1942. Mm-hmm. And then also in November of 1942, Fellini was sent to Libya, at the time occupied by fascist Italy, to work on a screenplay for Knights of the Desert. So he was already kind of mm-hmm. getting his feet wet in, in, in screenwriting. Yeah. Uh, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't really get a big... Um, he wouldn't really big, be a big piece of it until uh, he kind of became a figure in the neorealism movement that was happening mm-hmm. at the time. And so for those that don't know, I mean, if, I'm assuming if you're listening to this podcast, you know what neorealism is, but I'll just give you like a quick run. Some of them probably don't. Yeah, but it's Some like uh, the neorealism movement was kind of born after, you know, post-war. Post-war. Yeah, and yes. it's, it's stories involving World like War the II poor. specifically. Yeah, yeah, sorry, World War II. Uh, stories involving the poor and working class, uh, usually filmed on locations, yeah. uh, oftentimes with non-professional actors. Uh, they would address difficult economic and moral conditions of post-war Italy, World War II again, uh, and I love this quote. It, they, uh, Italians emerged from the ruins of the war with new eyes. So I think that's kind of that kind of explains their, their vision at, at this time. Mm-hmm. And as much as I dislike, you know, war in general, I do think it's fascinating that if you look at film history, a lot of movements and and even have been born within wars themselves or like post-war, post-war you know, yeah, internationally. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's fascinating when you look at film history because it's like, how do we react to this? How do we yeah. tell stories? How do we tell new kinds of stories, right? Yeah, and it was like yeah. the way internationally, I think even America, weirdly. Yeah, I mean, like, like if you are, you could argue a noir was born during World War II, right? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was noir, yeah. noir was, was yeah. kind of, was birthed out of yeah. the war. It was the, I kind of argue that the two genres that in America that were came out of the war were the noir genre and the Christmas genre. Oh, interesting. Because if you look at that kind of period, the Christmas movies really don't become a staple until like 1940. Yeah, and what's happening in the in the world at that time? Wars raging in Europe, and, and then people need that. People need that, and then by forty one, forty two, it's becoming a bigger yeah. thing. As is noir, and then you have the opposite side of that, which is the cynical, you know, the noir. So, yes, yeah, yeah. and so yeah. and and I think that's why you have that kind of interesting connection of sometimes noirs are set at Christmas because they're mm-hmm. literally were created around the same exact time yeah. together. But then you look at some directors like say John Ford or. Um, John Houston or William Wyler and those kind of George Stevens, those kind of directors, Frank Capra, those directors who were over in in, the, in Europe and and everywhere, yeah, uh, working and doing documentaries yeah, about have you watched the that war. Netflix documentary, mm-hmm. yeah, it was five really came back, which yeah. is a great documentary yeah, yeah. Doc, docu series um, about the five directors and how literally that war things they saw like yeah. changed them, yeah, and all of them, all of the movies they, came, they when they came back to America, all the movies they did were like kind of darker right. and like more cynical but it's like, like darker it's like it's like capper does it's wonderful life um ford does i believe my darling clementine is the the next one he does weiler does best years of our lives yeah i mean, uh, it, I mean it affects you i mean it, but it affects society as a whole yeah as yes. we can see with yeah the, yes so yeah, so but uh, Fellini would make friends with Roberto Rossellini around mm-hmm. this time, and they collaborated on the scenario for Ro- Rossellini's first film, Rome Open City, in 1945, yeah. which, which is, is a big, a, uh, an important, kind of, yeah. like a cornerstone piece of Italian neorealism. Mm-hmm. And the screenplay was actually Oscar nominated. Um, and with Rossellini's second film, Paisan, Fellini was able to t- kind of take on a full blown screenwriting career after it became world renowned. Yeah. Uh, he was also assistant director on the film. Okay. And it, this is important. Italians assistant director is a quite different than American assistant director. Like you're, you're, you're more of like a protege. You're not, yeah, like, yeah. you're not keeping track of the schedule. Well, I mean, it, maybe you're literally like, you're yeah. like shadowing the director. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you might still have like some administrative tasks, but you're, yeah. it's not like, 
like ADs here, they they are ADs. ADs here they, is yeah. like scheduling, safe, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. safety, and all these other right. things that run the set. So that I think that's important because it, it, and I also I and I find that fascinating about um the Italian film industry is like you can always trace it back. Like oh this guy was an assistant director for this guy. Yeah. It's really it's really fascinating. But it, I feel like or even, even as writers too, yeah. which I'll get into. I but. feel like even in England it was that way because yeah. I feel like Hitchcock was an assistant director. Yeah. As well, but wasn't like the, an AD right. type thing. I yeah. think he was some more of a protege. Uh, but anyways, okay. So and then in February of uh, 1948, he was introduced to Marcello Mastrione, mm-hmm. the star of this film, and uh, La Dolce Vita, uh, who was appearing in a play with his wife. Um, and then in 1950, Fellini would co-produce and co-direct Variety Lights with Alberto Latuada, mm-hmm. which starred both Fellini's wife and Latuadas. It received poor reviews and limited distribution, and the production company went bankrupt. Um, but the same year, Paisan was received an Oscar nomination at the 1950 um, uh, Oscars or Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. So he kind of bounced out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, his first solo feature would be in uh, 1952 with The White Sheik, which was a revised version of a treatment by Antonioni in 1949. Mm. So you're already seeing like, you know, again, like that, that system we're talking about. All right? the Italians yeah. helping one another out. Um, but yeah, it was sele- the, the White Sheik was selected for Khan, but then retracted. Uh, the comp- he did work with composer Nino Rota, though, mm-hmm. uh, but it also screened at the 13th Venice International Film Festival, where it was destroyed by critics, just roasted. Mm-hmm. One even said Fellini didn't have the slightest aptitude for cinema direction. Savage, man. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I bet that guy ended up eating crow later, but... Um, uh, so, but he would follow that up with E. Vitaloni in 1953, yeah. which would win the Silver Lion uh, Award at, in Venice, mm-hmm. uh, and it was written by himself. Ennio Flaioni and Tullio Pinelli, who again are co-writers on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the scenario was also uh, nominated for uh, Academy Award. Mm-hmm. His brother, Riccardo Fellini, was also one of the, the actors in the film. Oh. And then Fellini would make a segment in the anthology film Love in the City, which yeah. released in 1953. But his first big splash, which we've already kind of alluded to, would come with 1954's La Strada, yep. uh, which also starred his wife and, uh, which starred his wife and Anthony Quinn. Uh, and toward the end of shooting of La Strada, Fellini started to experience first signs of severe clinical depression, and he began therapy with a Freudian psychoanalyst by the name of Emilio Servadio. And this mm-hmm. would continue basically through this period and into well, what we're talking about today. Yeah. So uh, he followed that up with Il Bidone in 1955, which is which actually sounds like a fascinating film, even though the reviews I've read uh, aren't, aren't great. Uh, but it's a crime film, so I do want to oh. see Fellini take on a crime film. And he actually originally wanted Humphrey Bogart for the lead. But he learned about Hunk, uh, Bogart's cancer at the time, mm. uh, you know, because towards the end of his life, he was dealing with... Uh, and he ends up getting yeah. Broderick Crawford. Yeah, yeah. which w- ended up being a problem for him because of his uh, Crawford's alcoholism. Yeah. Uh, and this film was also destroyed by critics at the Ven- Venice International Film Festival. But he bounced back with <laughs> Nights of Cabiria in 1957, which again starred his wife. Yeah. And then he would follow that up with, uh, you know, another landmark film for him, uh, La Dolce Vita in 1960, which won the Palme d'Or. Again, mm-hmm. it starred Marcello Mastrione, and this quote I love, a brilliantly conceived, graphically etched, bil- bitterly sardonic, and morbidly fascinating panorama of Rome's decadent cafe society. It was seen by Fellini as an attempt to take the temperature of a sick society. So obviously, from that quote, you can tell there was a, quite a bit of scandal with the film. Yeah, um, There was an argument, uh, basically, that the neorealist films mostly focus on the working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so therefore the, the bourgeoisie in, in Italy at the time didn't like being represented, especially yeah. in this way, yeah. or, you know, in a sat, in a, in a satire way. Um, but it broke box office records. Uh, scalpers were even like selling tickets for a thousand lire. Um, crowds were waiting in line wow. for hours to see a quote unquote immoral movie, uh, before it was banned. Yeah, baby. Before Let's it was banned go. by censors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one audience member even spat at Fellini during a screening on Feb- Feb- February 5th, 1960 in Milan. So they, wow, they, yeah, I got is, some, 
and and critics at the time were were angry at Fellini because they felt he had betrayed neorealism by kind of creating his own style. But on the flip side of that, yeah. he kind of ushered in a new heyday of Roman filmmaking, this post-neorealism period, mm-hmm. with this following film, Eight and a Half, which we're talking yeah. about today. And the origins of the film can be found in this period that we've been discussing, where he was suffering from director's block in a way. Yeah. Uh, this is the period between Knights of Kabiria, 1957, and La Dolce Vita, 1960, where he didn't really do much. He was kind of very ill and depressed. Yeah. But any, I mean, three years yeah. is a big gap yeah. in this period of time when people are, when usually directors are making a movie right. a year. And he told Tulio at some point in this period that a director's years. artistic life lasts ten years, after which they repeat themselves. So he was kind of already dealing with this idea of like, wow, have I, have I lost? Have I lost it? Uh, and he would meet Jungian uh, psychoanalyst, which I just figured out that's how you pronounce that, uh, Doctor Ernst Bernhard in early 1960, mm-hmm. and he read Jung's autobiography in 1963. And these concepts that he was kind of discovering at this time period uh, would greatly influence his work, uh, including the concept of the anima in the case of eight and a half. Mm-hmm. So one of the central riddles of the film is that phrase, asa nisi masa. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's introduced in the mentalist show. They they read Guido's mind at the end, and yeah. she finds this phrase, and it takes him back to a childhood memory. But this was a game he played in school. It was sort of a variation of pig Latin, mm-hmm. where you make a word unintelligible. So you take, if you take the second syllable of each of those three words, push it together, you get the word anima, which means soul. Mm-hmm. Or in Jung's uh, theories, it is the personification of repressed female characteristics in the male animus would be the opposite of that the repressed mm-hmm. male characteristics of the female so this phrase uh, asa nisi masa can then be kind of con- um, interpreted uh, as uh, referencing guido's kind of confusion about women yeah. which is an important aspect of the, film. of the film and fellini's and fellini's own i think yeah what he's dealing with in this time period um in October of 1960, he would write a letter to Brunello Rondi, kind of outlining some ideas for the film, but he wasn't really sure what profession the protagonist would have. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, he was a writer. The, the protagonist was a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this basically carried all the way up until April 1962, which is right before production, by the way. Yeah. Uh, pretty close to production, when he got the idea that, wait a second, I'll just reflect what's been happening to me this whole time. <laughs> uh, and so Fellini would go on to call this a liberating film. It's the story of a filmmaker in crisis. Yeah. It's a film about making a film, but not only that, it's a film about making this film that we are watching. Yeah, um, and which and, is just wild. Yeah, it's when you it's think so about meta, this. and and like you don't even really realize like the meta levels until you watch it a few times, right? Because yeah. you're like, wait a second, because like that's there's that you know there's the fantasy sequence with all the women, and then the, the next scene he's auditioning women for that sequence, yeah, which is crazy to think about. Um, but basically, to tie that into the next thing is like Fellini's whole uh, concept with this film was he wanted to explore the three realms in which we live our lives: the past, the mm-hmm. present. And not the future, because obviously we can't tell what's going to happen. It's, it's the, the conditional future, right? Yeah. So that's where the fantasies and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. What, you, what, we, what we would hope for. Right, right. Um, and then uh, the original title of the film was actually La Belle, La Belle Confusione, mm-hmm. The Beautiful Confusion. Uh, and mm-hmm. But the reason that they switched it, well, that, that's not the reason they switched it, but the reason it's eight and a half is he had made, by his estimation, he'd made seven and a half films up to this point. I think that's including his co-directing credit yes. and those shorts, two shorts. Within, yeah, yeah. within the anthologies. Um, so he had made seven and a half films, so this was to be his eight and a half film. Um, just and, simple. It's yeah, just, this is yeah. like Pollock with, or like, like Jackson Pollock, like number 75. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, and he didn't, ha- okay, so I do want to, add a caveat to this so there's there's a there's a misconception with how Fellini viewed screenplays and scenarios uh-huh. some people are like no no, no he, he just didn't even have a script he just went 
on like a, they, know, they improv yeah, the entire yeah. thing. Like, like it's, I think it's feel, I feel like it's the same way with Malik nowadays, right? And yeah. I, I think Malik's kind of gotten more off script. Yeah. But I mean, you can still read the script for Tree of Life and and, and the Thin Red Line, like they exist. Yeah. Um. But but Fellini did have a, a scenario. Yeah. He just wanted it to be flexible. Mm-hmm. He called it a starting point. And he felt it offered security for the producers. He, he believed that the film grows as you're making it. Right? I mean, yeah, a script is a blueprint at the end right. of the day. Like that's, that's, I think sometimes yeah. I deal with this with stuff I write where I think sometimes, like, oh, you got to have it like really nailed down perfect before you make it. And I think you can get as close to perfection as possible. Yeah. But there's just certain things right. you're going to discover when you're actually making yeah, shoot it. it. Yeah, and it's those happy accidents that kind of yes. elevate them. I think that's kind of the have to diss Marvel real quick but like I was watching something and they're talking about how like like shooting it with real like in real places and things like that like it creates a avenue for accidents and for mess ups and in turn that is where the authenticity and right. realism can come yeah. in I actually just saw uh, Raimi, uh, an interview with Raimi uh-huh. and he had he had removed, I think it was a boom op or a cameraman in the original Evil Dead. Uh-huh. Like you just kind of see a crew member in a shot. Yeah. And he had removed it. And mm-hmm. somebody commented, hey man, why'd you remove that? I, I, like that added to the film. You know, it was a mistake. Yeah. That probably not many people noticed until the internet. Yeah. But, uh, but Raimi was like, oh, I didn't even think about the fact that that, that would, you know, affect uh, how people viewed it, right? Because it kind of gives it that you know, it's evil dead. So it's like, it has that, that low, you know, that, um, not yeah. low end, but like, you know, like in the indie spirit, indie right? spirit yeah. yeah. So like those kind of mistakes, I mean, you, you know, you never, you never want a crew member to shot, but I, that was the guy's argument. Yeah. And, and Remy was like, huh, I, I, I never really thought about that. Like I, yeah. now that I have this technology, I just wanted to fix that. Yeah. That's something that had always bothered me as a director. Yeah. So I think that's fascinating that, yeah. that we can fix those kind of things. You can't fix yeah. those things. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Star Wars. Yeah. Is, is, but, but that's different. That's, I think that's different. Um, I know. But, but like, but it's like with Marvel, so kind of say like yeah. where, where everything is kind of in a green screen space. Right. And well, that kind of forces you to do that whole, Oh, we'll fix it in post. Right. Yeah. Everything's yeah. pre-planned. Yeah, I mean, yeah. things can be pre-planned, yeah, yeah. but like everything can be just changed and there's not a lot of room mm-hmm. for improvisation on, not just in an acting way, but also in a directing way. Sure. It's like, I think of, to spoil a little bit of the Fablemans from Spielberg, it's like his ending shot when it's the like, kind of like tilt up or whatever that he does at the end. He can't with on the day. And that's just because it came to him and he could do it. But mm-hmm. like, well, what if they're shooting on, on a green screen and how difficult would that be? It's like, that's not just a quick decision. Oh, you have to you track make. that whole you thing. You have to know, like, oh, we got to do all yeah. these other things. It's just, it's a different, it's a different thing. Um, um, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no worries. Yeah, so that that I mean, all, that whole discussion leads into Fellini's quote here. Yeah. Uh, so basically, this was in response to the idea of this was in response to the idea of Fellini having quote unquote no script. If I wanted to commit artistic and economic suicide, that would be a beautiful and spectacular way to go. Mm-hmm. But since I don't, I arrive on set with a script in hand, though it doesn't really mean that much, except as a pacifier for actors who fear improvisation and for producers who crave reassurance that the structure for a film story has been created. Mm-hmm. What does matter, and this is key, back to the quote, is that I have a very precise idea of where I want to go in the film and how I want to get there long mm-hmm. before the camera starts to roll. Once it does, of course, I try to remain flexible enough to amend the action as the need arises rather than adhere blindly and fanatically to the original scenario as though, as though it were holy scripture. Yeah. And in, in this book that I read, um, The 200 Days of Eight and a Half, which I highly recommend if you're a fan of this movie, it was written by Dina Boyer. And her, um, 
her uh, her credit, I, I think, was press advisor or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But basically, her job on set was to to literally journal at what they were shooting every day. Um, oh, well. And and she but she put the scenario in that book. And um, what I find fascinating about it is I think it's what uh, the executives in like America uh-huh. would call uh, an outline because yeah. it's essentially what it is. And it's not really a treatment because it's written in paragraph form. So it's yeah. basically it's a you would have the numbered scenes, you mm-hmm. have the location, and then if as long as it's the beginning of a sequence, he puts day or night. But yeah. if it's like if he realizes that it's in the same sequence, he doesn't put that. And then it's just like a quick paragraph description mm-hmm. on, on what goes into that scene or sequence. Yeah. Um, and also I want to note that uh, whoever annotated that copy of uh, the 200 days of eight and a half that I got from the library has great handwriting and also great insight. So I really appreciate <laughs> appreciated those annotations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Wherever you are, if you're you know still out there, I hope I'm yeah. glad. <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, you did you did that. I, you did, I enjoyed you, reading you your did annotations. My job. You did my job. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with that, you know, with the talking about the scenario, I think we can move on to favorite scenes. Yeah. Um, let's see how this goes here. Because uh, yeah, I, I, I tried to limit myself because otherwise I'm just going to talk about the whole damn movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the op- the opening's fascinating yeah. uh, with the like kind of dying in the car yeah. and him well, floating. Yeah. So they kind of in the in the uh, in the um, in the commentary, they kind of argue that it was a rebirth, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, with, yeah, yeah. with death comes rebirth. And then yes. I love when he's pulled down on the beach, they said it's the machinery of movies bringing him back in, or reeling him back in. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, dude, I love the opening. I mean, the imagery, great. use of sound. Um, I, I always think at first, like, my TV's muted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it also instantly establishes this idea that the film's going to play with reality. Yes. Right. And, and what, yes. Uh, is what we're seeing in his head, is what we're seeing actually happening to Guido, or is it partial truth right yeah because so. it's still just Fellini's version right of his life is the thing um yeah I love there's the hotel lobby scene when he's like everyone's just coming up and uh like oh meet this person meet this person and it becomes this chaos and like they're asking him all these questions and that's when he first starts to get a little goofy too like, yeah he's well that's when he, put, he yeah. puts his yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, cover puts me his cover, he puts his hands <laughs> up and walks away but like that part, I was like, "Oh, that's a movie director." Oh yeah, and because, Gilliam said the same thing yeah. in his interview. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen a capture like that. It's like you just get hounded by questions. You get hounded, yeah. and it's like you have to have an answer for yeah. everything. It's like, well, and you, the sad thing about this is, people blue or green. Yeah, because the sad thing is, it's almost a nightmare for Guido, right? Because he's he's coming here. I mean, yes, he is he is in like early stages of film, right? Or he's, yeah. he, he has a deadline. He does have a deadline, but he's coming here to rest, like because of his ailment. So he's yeah. <laughs> he's like trying, like that's the last thing on his mind at the moment, and they're all. Here. They're hounding him about, it. and it's like, and, and and thing too, and he and he knows he doesn't know what the movie's going right. to be about, and he knows whatever decision he makes will probably not stay that way right. because right. he doesn't know what it's going to be about yet, and he doesn't want to admit that that he yeah. doesn't know because he's the maestro, he's this, like he's supposed to be this phenomenal filmmaker, and he doesn't know what movie he's going to make. Right is the thing. Um. And I love kind of skipping ahead with this, but like the moments when he's like kind of expressing what he wants to do, mm-hmm. but doesn't know how to obtain it. Like he has that scene um, with the, uh, which lady was it? Was, was it he, Rosella at the tower? Yes. Yeah. That and first he's, scene and he's oh, kind yeah. of talking about like how he wants, he was wanting to have something that was honest and yeah, like authentic. Yeah. Cause I, I love this monologue. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So I'll, I'll just, this is from the Blu-ray uh, translation, the Criterion Blu-ray translation, mm-hmm. because I, I watched a clip online and I think <laughs> the DVD, uh-huh. yeah, the DVD translation is a little different, but anyways, yeah. I, I, but I do love this quote and I think, I think this is vital quote yeah. to understanding both Guido and Fellini. So I thought my ideas were so clear. I wanted to make an honest film. No lies whatsoever. I thought I had something so simple to say, something useful to everybody. 
a film to help bury forever all the dead things we carry around inside. Instead, it's me who lacks the courage to bury anything at all. Now I'm utterly confused with this tower on my hands. I wonder why things turned out this way. Where did I lose my way? I really have nothing to say, but I want to say it anyway. And I think that perfectly captures imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, like, I, I can't tell you how many times I got halfway through a screenplay and be like, wait, what the hell am I trying to say? Do I have anything to say? say yep, I, yep. Am I adding anything to cinema? You know? That, that, that's yeah. that's yeah. like and any person, like, it's like I've heard phenomenal filmmakers and writers be like, oh, I still have that, like, fear right. of, like, do I have something to and say? And we see this here, I've heard, here. Yeah, I've heard Spielberg say it. I've heard, like, yeah. like oh, uh, do I have anything left to say? Right. Um, but I mean, but 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 what I, what I also love about this quote is that resolve at the end, right? It's it's uh, he says, you know, I really have nothing to say, but I want to say it anyway. And in yeah. the film, Marcello, his delivery, he kind of sings it, and like, yeah. he's like laughing a little bit. Yeah. So I, I do find that fact. He's, he's almost laughing at himself, like, yes, I'm in this moment right now, but I, you know, I, I will figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> that's a key monologue. Yeah. The other key monologue, I think, comes from the critic at the very end. Yeah. Which I like. I love. Yeah, I love that. I just love that the critic character because he's he's just falling around the entire movie. Like, yeah, yeah, your shit, your script is shit. <laughs> <laughs> and like he keeps just grilling him, man. And yeah. Like, anytime he shows up, but the, the but the, the the monologue at the end is key. You, you, yeah. Because it kind of turns it a little bit. Well, because yeah. he kind of, but it's like he can't. It's kind of revealing. Well, he has he the critic has the monologue, and then um, Guido has the monologue of like what he realized. Oh mm-hmm. wait, right. I've been trying to make a movie for other people. And like kind of fix them in a way and, mm-hmm. or help fix their situations. But I need to make the movie like essentially what I boil down is like he needs to make the movie that he wants to make and not worry about other people right. in the process. Because if he does that, it's going to make him be confused and not yeah. in a good way. Um, and that's kind of what the the beauty of the ending is. He, he, he kind of accepts the confusion, but he's also yeah. like, has some... Some sort of control. He has a little bit of a new mindset, right? He has some yeah. sort of control over it. And it's like, shown visually hey, through the circuit. Yeah, it's like, yeah. hey, I know it's confusing. Yeah. But you know what? It's my story yeah. and I'm going to tell it this way is kind of the thing. Right. And that's, I think that's the thing that any filmmaker, young or old, needs to kind of learn is that like, make the movie that in your mind you think mm-hmm. you should make and not try to, try to, uh, I won't say compromise, but not try to make someone else's movie. Right. No, no. Then that's and that and can, your thing. And that can so easily happen in the process when you're yeah. getting all these opinions and you know, all these notes. And it doesn't mean anybody that's giving you, you know, like any executive or producer is, give, is giving you bad advice, right? But they're, they're giving you their version of what they see the movie as, right? Yeah, what they want the movie to be. Right. And um, in, 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 in that, uh, I heard a Q&A with... Um, is it Charlotte Wells? Charlotte Wells yeah, for After Sun. Yeah, for After Sun. And she was talking about that, how they to- even told her at Sundance. They were yeah. like, okay, this next draft you're going to write because you're going to get all this feedback at Sundance, it's going to be worse than the dra- your current draft yeah, yeah. because you're going to take everybody's feedback and you're going to lose that. Yeah. And I was like, huh, that's interesting that they just straight up told her, like, yeah, this is just part of the process. Yeah, yeah, uh, But you got you got to try to hold on to that core, you know, your core idea. Get worse, and that's kind of what better. you did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the next, with the following draft. But um, I have a few other scenes as well. These yeah, are a little ahead. bit earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one scene that really touches me is the cemetery scene, and I won't get mm-hmm. too personal because I know that's not why we're here. But mm-hmm. I, I love how Guido's introduced in that scene. He's framed in like the reflection of his father's grave. He's got his head bowed, kind of almost in shame. And there's a moment. Uh, so just for context, I I, I I revisited this film a few months after my father passed. So this moment has like touched me that time, but it's touched me ever since. But yeah. he's like chasing his father, right? Like looking for answers. And he says, you know, Papa, I had so many questions I wanted to ask you. And he says, I can't answer them yet. And that moment, like, I don't, I don't know, it's, it explores an aspect of grief that I've never really seen shown because it's like, you, you know, Guido's lost. He needs the yeah. answers in that moment, but he kind of also realizes, oh, not only do I'm not going to get the mo- answers right now, but I'm never going to get those yeah. answers. Yeah. 
you know so it's 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 sad yeah uh, but it, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful how he shows that visually yeah um, as well but yeah and then brings them back at the end right as yeah. well yeah yeah and he's his mama and then she just turns back and yeah yeah uh but yeah no uh i also love the dancing scene with barbara Steele. uh yeah i mean that's like one of the cinema's best dancing scenes of my it's a great life. sequence and then pulp, and then tarantino steals it for right. Pulp fiction yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but i, lo- I love how because fellini does these long takes and so yeah. it's like he's like following her and then he has a separate shot of mezzabota and then they come back and it's, yeah. like, it's just beautiful how he how he stages it but yeah like yeah and, and, it, they, and it's kind of like open right. like weird well, like, at the beginning of that scene like the, the dance floor is kind of full yeah and then they kind of just i mean they don't take it over but like they take yeah. over that space yeah right? um yeah, and like I just think in that one scene alone, Barbara Steele just like shows her her her, her own style, star mm-hmm. heart. Yeah. I agree. And I then agree. my other favorite um, sequence is the steam bath sequence. <laughs> and um, in the commentary, they said I so we associate this imagery with the underworld of Dante's Inferno, and that made that made me think of it in like a completely new context. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna meet the Cardinal. I, yeah. love, I was like, oh, like make make sure he does this. Like, like can he get like make my Mexican divorce yeah. like okay or whatever he said. One guy. But says. when he meets the Cardinal, it's it's really haunting. Yeah. Uh, like because he just he just keeps repeating these phrases like, "There's no salvation outside the church. No yeah. one will find salvation outside the church." Like, it's really haunting. But but again, this kind of I think uh, touches on not only like. Italian Catholic guilt in general, mm-hmm. like just because just a part of their culture, right? Yeah. But Fellini's own because he, you know, he like I said, he left the church at a, at a young age yeah, and he yeah. went to a religious school when he was when he was young. Um, so uh, I think like that again, it, that that's like stuck with him, even yeah. though he's not like outright like condemning the church or anything. I, I think it's just this is like imagery in his head, right? Like this, that he's that he's facing. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, and the cardinal's the cardinal's presence there is just. And it kind of hangs over the movie, yeah, you know? the entire time. Because he movie. meets him at a few points. So he meets him in the in the elevator. Yeah. And one thing one thing that's interesting about the production design there is it looks like a confessional booth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, but, they, but he doesn't have that conversation. He doesn't really even have a conversation with the cardinal here. He's supposed to, but mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but it, it's 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 interesting how it builds like this concept of the cardinal and how he's gonna be you know, yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Be be a part of that life. Right. So those were all my favorites. Oh, well, then the ending, which we kind of alluded to. Yeah. I think I think the ending is beautiful because, you know, it brings back together everyone and everything in his life, right? And we talked about this. He, he's he's confused. He's yeah. struggling. But at this in this moment, and no, you know, he's he's now he's no longer directing the film, mm-hmm. but he is. He does have some sort of control over this. Like he yeah. is directing. He's the circus. But yeah. He's 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 he has some sort of control now, or some like a new outlook on like okay. I can accept this yeah. is my life and I'm just going to like, I can deal with it somewhat. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some more scenes I have. I really like the stuff with, with his wife, uh, Louisa, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the, that's the big sequence when, or see, like kind of when she shows up finally and they are nice to one another at first and then it starts to kind of crack open. Yeah, and you see their problems. And that and that's kind of what happens that like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. Let's be cordial. Like we're we're still married. Like I still love you. And then slowly the cracks yeah. of like, have you had any affairs while you while, while, while I've not been here? And it's like, no, and no, I would never do that. And then like she's well, like she sees she sees she sees right through that. She's and, and and I love the kind of argument scenes where you have when after they come from the tower and she she in, in the bedroom. In yeah. the bedroom. Yeah. And Great I think scene. I think she goes out and he goes back to the hotel and that's what he like he like he's waiting up for her and then he hears her, he like pretends he's asleep is what it is. <laughs> and they start having the fight of like, well, why did I come here if you don't want me here? And all these different things. And what I find fascinating is like the argument happens, it doesn't really end, and then it skips the next day where they're out in like the kind of like uh outdoor dining right. area and they see 
um, his mistress Carla, yeah. and the argument continues. It's oh, like I mean, I think that's true to relationships, right? It's like yeah. it's like the, the argument's just gonna keep going yeah. until it comes to it. Yeah, and he, and he and she's just like, he's like, you don't have to stress about it. Like I, I I spotted her last night or whatever. And I love Carla when Carla shows up. It's it's a great comedic beat when she shows up and she's like walking, I think, to go over to him, and then she sees him. And stops and kind of does this like she, she like tries to play. She kind of turns around and kind of like like kind of does a stutter step and then bases a, th- a full three sixty and then comes back and then starts walking to a different table and that's when when he's she's like I've already spotted her yesterday so you don't have to worry like and don't don't embarrass me right now by lying to me when I know you're well yeah. or, or, or when you're. You're lying to me, basically. Yeah. There's no truth to it. Well, the other interesting thing about that scene is that beside her is Rosella, who, uh, yeah. who is uh, clairvoyant. So she, I mean, it doesn't matter what Guido says there. Yeah. He's, he's checkmated. Yeah. <laughs> and and they're like they're like dissing Carla's like yeah. cheap, <laughs> cheap dress or anything. And then and but then, he, but he definitely like we were kind of talking about this off air, but he deserves this moment. He deserves to be oh ridiculed yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Like Louisa, yeah. that's the thing is that Louisa is is his his um. She is an antagonist of force. Now, when yes. we say that, it doesn't mean she's the bad. She's guy, not right? the bad but, person. No, but she's not since the Guido is our protagonist in yes. storytelling terms, she, she is the antag- antagonist it's, it's, force. It's yeah. the opposite yeah. of the, uh, the protagonist right. that, yeah. that promotes she's conflict a for him. Good definitive one, you know. For, no, for she the movie. is because yeah, yeah. then you have yeah you have that scene. And then she's like she ends up being nice to Carla and goes and gets her, and they start doing like a dance as yeah. they're walking down. But again, that's like his fantasy of what. Yes. Oh, it's yeah. Um, and he kind of is dancing to it or whatever. But then I love the when they're doing the screen test. Yeah. And he has Louisa and the, his producers and stuff there and they're testing and they're testing people essentially to play Carla, the mistress and who's dressed just like Carla. Right. And then the late or a lady who's basically playing the wife. Yeah. And Louisa's watching this and she's watching and seeing their life on screen. Mm-hmm. She's seeing the conversation they just had a few nights before on the screen. She's seeing the woman that he's had an affair with her on screen, different person, but it's like, you're, you're like, Oh, this is going to be, he's, he's, he is making a movie about our lives basically. Yeah. And I love the, the ending of that when, when she leaves and he comes out to her and she's like, I'm happy you, I'm happy you brought you brought me here because now you have your ending. Yeah. Now I'm never coming back. This is this is it. And it's just a great like definitive like mm-hmm. you, and you and you know he's going to be like I'm going to put this in the movie. Right. Type thing. But he but he, he does have that, like a moment of like like uh reflection before he goes back in. Yes. Uh but but um What's interesting is there, there's actually a line change in that scene. I don't know if you want me to wait till aftermath to to reference this or if you want me to discuss uh. this now. You can do it now. Okay. So, so yes. So, what, so I'll get more into this why later, but Fellini was kind of famous for, because they were dubbing the, the film in post, mm-hmm. he would just, he would, he would either have them say nonsense on set or, and, and change the lines later. Change lines in yeah. post. But this scene did have dialogue. And um, in that fight, originally, oh, sorry, so in the final film, for Guido to prompt her, like, her big, like, okay, this is over. Yeah. He says, don't be melodramatic. Mm-hmm. But in the original thing, he said, I need you or something along those lines. It completely yeah. changes the dynamic of that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do wonder how much or how many changes like that were made. Like, because like, it's what? It seems like a minor change. Oh, it's two lines of dialogue, yeah. right? Or one line of dialogue. That changed the context. Changes of their, whole dynamic, dynamic. their whole dynamic. Uh, that whole argument. Him saying, I need you. Yeah. 
is admitting he's wrong, right? And and and, yeah. and instead he's saying, "Don't be melodramatic." And says like, "Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, what do you you expect?" It's almost like you expected this from me. Don't right. don't make this a big deal. Like, it's a different it's different. Ch- changes that everything. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing. Um, but it also like makes sense for her to you know and, in, and, in either in either iteration. And again, like she's it, it, it right. makes yeah. to where he's sympathizing with her and or that sympathy, but he's he's like needs her and and to be a part of it. And that's also a big thing is that his character like wants to have women in his life mm-hmm. in some case to take care of him or to be there for him in some way. I mean, that's what that whole fantasy sequence yeah, is. That's about, the whole right? harem yeah. sequence is. Yeah. And, but, but if he takes that way, he's like, don't be again, don't be melodramatic is that he, he's, he's, they're keeping that antagonistic force, that conflict mm-hmm. between them mm-hmm. to where, you know, this can't last because she's, he's not going to be what she wants. And then vice versa is yeah. the thing. Uh, and and you know to to a certain I mean not to a certain extent this this is true to life because Fellini and and, and Giulietta I mean he Fellini had extramarital affairs yeah um so I, I I think the reason some of those arguments feel so authentic is because I'm sure Fellini had these yeah. damn arguments <laughs> but they were yeah. but they were married oh you know the whole the whole time the whole time yeah they, yeah. Yeah, yeah never got divorced yeah never but, but he did have extramarital affairs and I'm sure they yeah. had they had many discussions along these lines yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, was that all your favorite scenes? That's I mean, that's yeah. all my scenes. There's certain lines I had, like again, the critic. There's the one line where he's like talking about when they cancel the film, and he goes like to the producer, he's like, "To him, it'd been a financial matter. To you, it'd have been the end." <laughs> and it's but it's kind of yeah. like the idea of like art versus commerce, commerce right. is that to a business person, it's just a bad business deal. Okay, whatever, moving on. To a, the, an the artist, yeah, it's yeah. like God, I'll never live this down. Yeah. Like this is always going to be part of my legacy legacy now and my work my work and like it's not something you can just well in some cases it's not something you just write off right off in some way on your taxes or something and like get rid of and disappear as to an artist it will always be there at least in their mind Mm -hmm. even if it's gone it's always going to be in their mind that they made that movie that way or did this and and it failed um i uh another line i love is um which kind of ties into this this concept of, of how Guido views love. Mm-hmm. Um, he he meets these two women in, in bed. I, I can't remember where it is in, in like the in the plot like plot line, but mm-hmm. he meets these two women in bed and they go, "You don't know how to make a love story." And he's like, "She's right." <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. Like, you know, it's like it's like he's almost a, he almost realizes like yeah. you know these are my problems. And yeah. I, I think I think the whole film, you know, all the because f- we haven't really touched on many of the flashbacks or anything. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of those flashbacks is him like trying to realize like trying to figure out. Uh, why he why he behaves the way that he does yeah. you know and I think that is an, and even if he doesn't like he does make that argument at the end that he's gonna change in, in a way yeah I don't know if I fully buy that but I do respect that Guido is is reflecting and being like okay how did I it, how, what what is the central cause of this behavior because yeah. if if he's just like if he's just gonna address the behavior he's never gonna change mm-hmm. or that behavior will just turn into something else yeah. but if he addresses that central problem uh, you know and it's probably born somewhere in his childhood. Yeah. Then he, then he might has a better chance of, yeah. of actually changing and making it work. He's got to do. He's got to work on. He's got to do the work. And it, the but work. but, I, but that, again, that's also the beauty of the, of the ending. Is like I don't think he's saying like, oh, I don't have more work to do. I think he's saying like, I, I can kind of accept this is where yeah, I'm yeah. at, and uh, you know, I I have a long journey ahead. Yeah. I have the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I'm only he's middle aged. I think I think this is kind of a mid midlife crisis. Yeah. Maybe, it it is. It is. But um, yeah, because and that's one thing um was kind of read in the uh in the commentary was uh, perceived is that Mezzavota, the uh and his young fiance is kind of a commentary on on both Fellini and Guido's fear of aging 
mm. because you know Mezabota is an older man. He's he's Fellini's friend. I mean, mm-hmm. sorry, Guido's friend in the movie. But uh, he has this young fiance, right? And uh, mm-hmm. so it's like it's like he sees their like lively dance and all that, and it's like it's it's him viewing like. Oh man, I, I am getting old. It's yeah. it's, it's getting there, and it, while he's also dealing with his ailment, yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting how how he weaves like those kind of foil characters, yeah, uh, within within the text. So cool. That's yeah. all my sayings. Cool. Uh, you don't want to harp on the ending anymore? No, 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 no. no, no. All right. all and right. and there'll probably be no clips on this unless you understand Italian. It'll be, <laughs> you gotta at we'll least go from you gotta at least have him go mesa bota mesa bota because <laughs> he like oh chased. I did another thing in that yeah. sequence too I did yeah. love when he meets the like the guy who's the party the party host or whatever that does with the the and they know each other he's like oh it's been a long time my friend yeah he's well, like you're famous what, now and that's one thing I think Fellini's excels at yeah and it's 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 same way with the Coens and PTAs he finds these he, he found sorry he's he's yeah. long past but he found these random characters just yeah. to fill his world right yeah. he's really good at like bit parts yeah and yeah that guy that um that introduces all that he's amazing yeah and he has so he has such a presence too for like a, you know a 10 minute sequence yeah um but yeah so i think we can move on to on yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. so the film began production on may 9th 1962 and I, i'm gonna very much um reference that book the the 200 days of eight and a half uh-huh. uh written by dina boyer and according to her uh her account uh the first like the first day of shooting wasn't much different than the screen test that they had been doing for weeks at Scalera Studios. So it was almost like, yes, this is our first day of shooting, but it's like, are we really, have we really changed anything? Yeah. Um, but Fellini apparently only kept two copies of the script on the scenario on set, uh, and he never showed it to the actors. <laughs> uh, and it seems oftentimes he would change the scene from the descriptions in the scenario. That doesn't mean like it's still the same location, but he'd be like, you know, like it's just a quick paragraph of what he initially thought. And he's like, yeah. okay, we're here now. We're going to change. Like we talked about, yeah, yeah. we're going to improvise the scene somewhat. Um, but, and I did notice that like, I, I didn't read the full scenario. I just kind of skimmed it, but I did notice. I was like, Oh wait, this description sounds way different than the, the final scene in the film. Um, and Fellini. So, but Fellini was considered kind of a, a great, uh, actors director. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that uh, behind the scenes on him in, on the the Criterion Blu-ray release, uh, they kind of argued that he would see what was in people beyond what they could see in themselves, and he would make them some play something that they weren't even conscious of. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would like bring out the soul of people, right? Uh, and people, lo- according to that, people love to be used by Fellini, uh, and it se- it's that seems accurate because he had um he had his stage at at Chinachita Studios, mm-hmm. stage five, and he also had an office there. And after hours, people would come from all over the community and visit him. Like and just talk to him, and mm-hmm. this isn't like you know, this isn't people in the film industry. This is like you know, just random people in the community, and he would enjoy talking with them. Um, but he, but obviously, due to this kind of style, uh, he would keep actors on hold mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't always know when they would be used, how long they would be used. Yeah, uh, actors would arrive and have no idea what their role in the film was or how long they'd be needed. And, and there's even a joke about that within the film. Yeah, like, in that in that same sequence we were t- referencing a few minutes ago, when he is at the table and she's like, "Well, how how long?" Or I think it, it's her agent or manager asks, "Like, how long are you going to need her?" Yeah, and he's like, oh, "I don't know, five or six scenes." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like um, five scenes, you yeah, know, really? Five or six Maybe scenes. six. Yeah. Uh, but the actors wouldn't mind, according yeah. to this account. Like, they were just excited to be a part of this. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, according to this, like, Fellini never got angry. Yeah. And that doesn't mean he wouldn't raise his voice. When I say raise his voice, I mean project. He would, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he would yell directions, but it, not in, like, anger or malice yeah, or, yeah. or frustration. It was in, like, hey, I need you to hear me because we got this super wide shot and, like, yeah. I need that extra in the distance to hear me. Um, and I watched him directing because uh, there's the behind the scenes on Juliet of the Spirits, um, which was his follow-up to this again. Uh on the Criterion uh, channel. Mm-hmm. And it, it, he's very much like Guido at the end of the film. It's like, it feels like organized chaos. But I think yep. he does do a better job of like 
because there are people like coming up and asking him questions. I think he does a better job than Guido, like because Guido sometimes just like dance out of their way or like you know like mm-hmm. trying to avoid them. He he does he does do a good job of of answering. Um, so I, I think his directing style in that regard was. It, it's not as I, I think as uh, free and loose as people would argue. Yeah, like people would believe at the time. Um, and of course, like we said, uh, you know, d- during this time, Italians, uh would not record sound while shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would allow Fellini, to, but I think Fellini enjoyed this because it allowed him to play music, yeah. you know, again, say directions during takes. Uh, he would create new dialogue in post uh, because again, they were dubbing all their voices at the end anyway. What didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and I already kind of went over that, that one change that uh, was really interesting. So mm-hmm. I am curious what other kind of changes happened through that process. Yeah. But what I learned um, through that, that doc is uh, the, the reasoning that Italians even started doing that. And I never knew this was that they had, you know, obviously they made silent pictures and they had built all these uh-huh. studios uh, that were not soundproof. And so oh. when sound was inter- introduced, they thought it was too complicated to rebuild all this. Yeah. And they just kept it as tradition, essentially. Yeah. Um, you know, well, well into, you know, l- later on. Like, I mean, yeah. the Giallo films, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Spaghetti Westerns. I mean, it's it's fascinating. that I, I never knew that that was the reason. I just, I always thought that was like a, a traditional thing. And so, I think, too, as you get yeah. later on, it's like you're they start bringing in, like, American actors right. over into yeah, and we talked about that on Good, Bad, the Ugly. Yeah, yeah. They're all speaking different languages, so yeah. And also, Leone is speaking a different language. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you're bringing them all in, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, it's like the crew and cast are all, so it's like right. it's easier just like we'll just we'll, yeah. we'll dub them in post, yeah. Um, uh, and but one thing I find absolutely fascinating about this movie, and I did not mm-hmm. know this until you know my research, is Fellini himself kept having them build that tower up, <laughs> and and it it's like he he knew that. He knew that it was going to be a piece of the thing, but he just was like, it's got to be tall. It's got to be tall. So this is a quote for the book. The spaceship launching platform. Yeah, so like, uh, so by the way, the, the tower in the, f- in the, f- in eight and a half uh-huh. is because he's making a sci-fi movie that he doesn't know, but this is going to yeah. be at the end of the movie. It's going to have a spaceship. A, yeah, you it's going to shoot a spaceship. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but Fellini is building it for Guido to be building it. So anyways, Fellini himself is te- keeps telling the same thing. But it, this quote from the book, the spaceship launching platform should be ready by the 1st of August or at the latest the 15th. In order to complete their drawings and their calculations, the engineers in charge of the project must know the kind of soil they will have for its foundations. The platform is actually two towers. The taller will measure about 200 feet, and the choice of site that meets the director's requirements is one of the most difficult of the production staff problems. (laughs) Now, why this is fascinating, I'll talk about in a second. But also, allegedly, this is the same beach where Pierre Pasolini was murdered. Uh, Now, I don't know, you know how beaches can be long, so I don't know if this is the specific spot, but allegedly, this is the same beach. Um, and his murder was pretty brutal, uh, but this would happen, that would happen years later. Um, okay. Yeah. So interesting potential film fact. I'm not sure how accurate it was, but that was in the, uh, in the behind the scenes on this. Here's the thing. I never knew Pierre Pasolini was murdered. Oh yeah. Until uh, so some now. people, it, there's conspiracy around this. So, so, so I heard of interviews with John Waters and he thinks it's just a, ba- it was a bad trick because they, uh-huh. there was a guy driving his car. Uh-huh. Uh, it was like a hustler, you know, like a street hustler, like a, yeah. you know, like, um, so they think it was just a bad trick and and that he murdered him. But I mean the murder was pretty violent. But other people believe it was the mafia. So I, I don't yeah. know. It's a it's very it's a conspiracy. It's a big conspiracy. But yeah, oh, it, was, yeah. it was a brutal murder. Yeah. He was run over. Um I think it was tortured before that. Beat with a metal yeah. metal bar. Yeah. So that's why people assume it was and and it, you know, this was like pretty close to after he had made solo, I believe. So um yeah. So the, which is a very political film, if you don't know. So yeah. um yeah. But anyways, okay. Yeah, it's definitely it's in the, e the same location where yeah. <laughs> um yeah. Brutal, brutal. But yeah. um, anyways, more more lighter stuff. Uh, so the reason I find this tower thing fascinating is because it wasn't originally going to be the big third act set piece mm-hmm. or the big ending set piece. Uh-huh. There was a different ending 
And it was a train scene where everyone would, you know, from his life would be on the train. And it was shot twice, actually. So once was with everyone in black and once with, was with everyone in white. Um, and it was more of like a, a downbeat ending. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't as like uplifting as him directing. Yeah. And, but they shot this stuff, and, and there's more of it too, uh, to use for a promotional trailer. And if you watch the trailer, they still have a lot of the, like, it's more yeah. like handheld footage of them yeah, like, yeah. running around and stuff, but it's, it's still there. And according to Tulio, because he says this in the interview, it was his suggestion to go with the upbeat ending instead. But I think it seemed, it seemed unanimous at a certain stage. Yeah. But I, I do think that's fascinating that they spent all this time and work on this tower when it wasn't initially, was, wasn't initially going to be the big final set piece, you know? The final day of shooting was October 14th, 1962. So they shot from May, I mean, they took a little breaks here and there, but May 9th mm-hmm. to October 14th. That is a long shoot. A long man. shoot this period of time. Um, but again, you know, because of the Italian system, the movie was far from over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So we're going to move into the aftermath now. Okay. They would, basically, as soon as the, the first, basically as like a week after they wrapped, he started doing voice tests for dub for dubbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and on November 10th, a preliminary version of the film was screened with that original ending on the train that I that I talked about. And yeah. pretty much nobody liked it. Like, it just, it just didn't work. Um. So they started dubbing on November 19th. They had mm-hmm. 12-hour days. They, you know, again, Fellini would change lines regularly. So, it, you know, basically he was writing, and people say this, right, that, that, that the edit is the final rewrite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think literally in the case of Fellini, that it was well, the final. Well, yeah. um, and on January 21st, 1963, so again, that, that post process was from like November to January, yeah. the dubbed version is screened with its current ending uh-huh. and unanimously preferred yeah, yeah. across the board. Uh, the film would release in Italy on Valentine's Day, 1963, to great acclaim. It screened at the 1963 Cannes Film Festival, but mm-hmm. out of competition. Yeah. So there was something going on because it was also playing at the Moscow um, International Film Festival. So there was some 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 issue there that it couldn't be in competition, but it did screen at, at Cannes. Gotcha. Um, and then it would release in the States on June 25th, 1963. And it, it, it pretty much got unanimous acclaim here too, except for some key critics. Uh, one of which we talk about on this podcast often. So it was Judith Christ or Christ. I don't. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Uh, Pauline Kael and John Simon. And so I have a quote. So I have. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say <laughs> I, I read Pauline Kael's review, and I always like she. She was a great writer, and she was a great. You know, she was great at getting her points across. Yeah. I fundamentally disagree with her reading of the film, but but I I enjoyed reading it, and I I think it's it is important to read like alternate yeah. you know alternate um takes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do have a quote here from her. For, from your uh, review, and I'm curious what mm-hmm. you think because I also have a quote from Ebert that almost it's almost like they're in conversation even though they're not. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is Kale. This is Kale's review. Mm-hmm. Uh, a quote from Kale's review. It's more like the fantasy life of someone who wishes he were a movie director, someone who has soaked up those movie versions of an artist's life in which, in the midst of a carnival or ball, the hero receives inspiration and dashes away to transmute life into art. <laughs> Um, and by the way, that's not even her final paragraph. That's like midway through the, the, movie, the review. The review. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, I think for, judging from that quote and what I read in the review, it, it, it seems she felt it was inauthentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, obviously, if that's her reading, I can't dispute that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I do find that fascinating that she was a, not only was she a big like against it, but like you know one of the few. So. Yeah, and then what, and then what did Ebert say? So I get two quotes from Ebert, and, okay. and in the first. Okay, so also I want to uh, add that Ebert added this to his great movies list at the turn of millennium. Uh, yeah, turn of the millennium. Um, but uh, one of the quotes he's directly responding to a web-based critic who he does not name, I guess, out of respect. So that's this one. Liberty was guess stupid. Yeah. So he goes, "What happens?" asks a web-based critic when one of the world's most respected directors runs out of ideas, and not just in a run-of-the-mill kind of way, but whole hog. So far that he actually makes a film about himself not being able to make a film. 
and then this is Ebert's response. But Eight and a Half is not a film about a director out of ideas. It is a film bursting with inspiration. Mm-hmm. Guido is unable to make a film, but Fellini, manifestly, is not. Yeah. And then he also, at, at the end of his review, he says this, I have seen Eight and a Half over and over again, and my appreciation only deepens. It does what it is almost impossible. Fellini is a magician mm-hmm. who discusses, reveals, explains, and deconstructs his tricks while still fooling us with them. Mm-hmm. He claims he doesn't know what he wants or how to achieve it, and the film proves he knows exactly and rejoices in his knowledge. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, beautiful, man. Like, the, the respect there. The yeah, respect yeah. there is just awesome. But uh, but again, I, like I said, I, I, I'm glad that Kale that wrote that review because, I, I, like I said, she always writes her point, you know, yeah. her points are very well written um, and well argued, so... Um, I think I think it's definitely worth reading, especially if you love this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was also reading like uh, reviews on Letterbox before we recorded. Uh, you know, like the popular yeah. lower ratings, and you know we can we can look at that if we want. But uh, yeah, there was some there was some interesting. A lot of them point to the misogyny, and and, and they say you know it's sexist and stuff like that. Um, and then some people are just like, I don't get it. <laughs> I, I saw one guy said uh, I turned it off halfway through. And I'm like, well, why is this review popular? Um. Because someone's like, I agree. <laughs> um, but the film, would, you know, it got a ton of awards and recognition. Um, I mean, it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film and yeah. Best Costume Design, Black and White, when they still split wow. that. yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was also nominated for Best Director, mm-hmm. Best Original Screenplay, Written Directed for the Screen, and Best Art Direction, Black and White. And it was nominated for Best Picture. N- uh, Probably not. No, no. That's wild. But... Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. So, but he, but four of Fellini's films, La Strada, Knights of Cabiria, Eight and a Half, and Armacord, uh-huh. won the international feature film gotcha. at the Oscars. Um, and I haven't seen Armacord, but that's like his later film that people really respect. Yeah. So basically, after this period, like Eight and a Half, mm-hmm. like with starting with Julia the Spirits. Yeah. Uh, there's kind of like a people. Uh, a general consensus is like a downturn, and then yeah. it kind of came back up with Armacord. Yeah. Derek but, Derek really likes Armacord. Yeah. I, I, I want to see that. It, 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 and again, that's another color film. And I think his mm-hmm. color f- work is really fascinating. Like his 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 Roma, not Corwan's. Mm-hmm. It's like it doesn't really have a story. They're just like shooting things around Rome, mm-hmm. but it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. And yeah. it's cool to see Rome like. Like, cause he shoots it like during the day at yeah. night, and it's the time period. Yeah, it's a time it's just, capsule. It's beautiful film, man. I need beautiful. to I need to watch more Fellini's films because yeah. I've just seen this La Strada and La Dolce Vita. Is okay, the thing. I, I want to go back to La Dolce Vita, especially like now that I've kind of had uh, uh, like more more uh, of a personal interest in Eight and a Half. Yeah, so. La Dolce Vita, I think was a, was a COVID. So movie. I watched that. I watched that in film school, uh, uh-huh. but that was my last semester. So my senior year, I basically took. I had to take one more business class, yeah. and then I took. Four uh, film electives, so I watched a lot of movies. Wow! Yeah, so there were days when I, you know, like it was like a day where I like watched La Dolce Vita and like something else, and so it was like, you know, some of those I I don't think I gave a fair shake to because yeah, I was yeah. just I literally my homework was watching movies, which I I don't know why I'm sounds like I'm complaining right now because it was very fun. My homework was watching yeah. movies. Yeah, it was fun, but yeah, I think I definitely uh, overextended myself by taking four film analysis classes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the one I really wanted to take was a French film noir class, but they didn't offer it. Uh, my last semester, so I was sad about that. Mm-hmm. But he did send me the like the guy was really nice, so he sent me the syllabus, and I okay. still need to go through that the films on that list because there's a lot of cool ones. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah. Anyways, uh, he, uh, yeah, like I said, those four won the best uh, international film yeah. at the Oscars. Uh, but he he himself was nominated twelve times for writing and or directing, 
never once won. Another, you know, of the greats that never won an Oscar, yeah. right? But he did get a honorary award in 1993. Yeah, that's when you're like, hey, yeah, was this, was this before or after he passed away? That was so the he, year he passed. Yeah, he's passed in 93, yeah. yeah. It's always like, yo, we kind of screwed up. Yeah. Let's give you an Oscar. And just, you'd be like Hitchcock. Especially a titan like Fellini. I mean, Hitchcock never won an Oscar. Yeah. And, and, and when he got the honorary, honorary one, he was just like, thank you very much and walked off stage. <laughs> that was it. I'm like, good for you, Hitch. Um, the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists awarded the film Best Director, Producer, Original Story, Screenplay, Music, Cinematography, wow. and Best Supporting Actress for Sandra Milo. It was also nominated for Best Actor, Costume Design, and Production Design. So it only didn't get three of the awards. It was yeah, yeah. Um, it like it won the Grand Prix at that Moscow Inter- mm-hmm. Moscow International Film Festival. Uh, which was, which is like their big award. Um, it has always been on the sight and sound list. So far as last year's, it was number six on the director's poll and number thirty one on the critics, which is mm. actually a drop, a pretty big drop. From yeah, it, was number, in t- it was in the top ten, right? Yeah, it was number four on the twenty twelve yeah. director's poll and ten on the twenty twelve critics poll. But still, I mean, the fact that it's you know that high up is pretty crazy, um, uh, and and historically has you know been that high up. Uh, it was yeah. also turned into the Tony-winning 1982 Broadway musical, well, ad- adapted, uh, and later a film adaptation called Nine, Nine Baby, in 2009, with Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. as Guido, which you have seen. I, ha- I have seen Nine. It's been a long time. By the way, did you see that before you saw it, Inav? Yes. Oh, damn. <laughs> so I never revisited post watching Eight and a Half. Yeah. Um, well, that, that was like because Daniel Lewis plays Guido essentially. Um, Penelope Cruz got an Oscar nomination for it. Um, Kay Hudson, I think, had a, I think was pretty good if I'm not mistaken in it. And Cruz was good in it too. But Man Cotillard was in it. Um, Fergie, oh, yeah. Fergie but, but, but was isn't in it. Isn't the whole thing with the what I what I, what I read? It was like the, in the musical, it's just he's the only male character, right? Mostly, okay. it's like it's yeah. mo- it's more about like which is kind of crazy because that this is a lot about his relationship with women. Yeah, Nine is like very much just about like the women in right. his life. So I think like Fergie plays the, the childhood like lady who hangs out. Oh, so Saragina. Yeah. Saragina. So that, no, that, that was a real thing. So, uh, there was a woman who, who, uh, uh, named La Saragina, uh. who was a prostitute who lived on the beach in Rimini. Mm-hmm. And, um, they called her that not, not, not Fellini, like the yeah. community called her that because, uh, she would sell herself for the sardines of the local fishermen's nets, like the the the, the dregs, like their wow. bottom. Yeah, so really brutal. But yeah, yeah, no, but that that was a real thing. So Fellini and some boys went down there, and then she did her dance. Yeah, and yeah, and then okay. got in trouble. Yeah, yeah, I can um, see. I can but I think I think according to that behind the scenes doc, in real life, Fellini was more involved in wanting to do it whereas yeah. in the movie it feels like they're like guido come Grandma on guido. yeah every every child is like guido guido like like oh when he's like a real little boy yeah, he's running little, around yeah i love like, that shot by the way he's running under the table crawling under the table oh yeah, yeah. and and that's funny because then like when he gets at the press conference he's like crawling under a table yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so how do you feel about that that suicide by the way uh him, him shooting himself oh yeah. um, i mean i know it's a fantasy but it's like it's like I think that I think it's a good visual for like building that chaos to like to literally to the breaking point. <laughs> well, it comes yeah. back to that beginning. Yeah. It also kind of comes back to the beginning of of maybe the the death equals like rebirth, Re- rebirth in some right. way, and right. that's what happens. That he has this death, and then the next and part the movie's is over. Ending. But he's got. But he yeah. but he's it, the the he had to fail right. in order to f- realize what he really needed sure. to do is the thing. So. Um, but yeah, would you recommend uh, either the Tony uh, musical, uh, Tony winning musical, or the uh, film version? I cannot comment 
uh, on that. Uh, I have not seen nine in a long time, gotcha, gotcha. and I don't know if I think it's good or not. Because I was, I think I was in high school. Maybe oh, wow, okay. I saw it when it first came so out. So did you know? I mean, obviously, like after the fact, but did you know going into it that it was no. based on this? Oh, okay, no, interesting. Um, I was dumb apparently. Yeah. Um, but he's still making a film in that. Like, that's what's curious to me. Or is mm-hmm. he doing a stage? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. He's doing. He's doing yeah. a film, and uh, yeah, it was oh nine. Okay. Um, oh yeah, the, the day no day Lewis. So yeah, and uh, I mean, I do find that fascinating that he's the lead. So I, I mean, that that intrigues me. But I, I just it, yeah, like Co- fundamentally, I'm curious how this is turned into a me- music. And Nicole you know? Kidman, that was what. So like, yeah. So Cotillard plays Louisa, his wife. Penelope Cruz plays Carla, the mistress. Um, Nicole Kidman plays uh, Claudia, the movie star. Oh yeah, his, um, his quote unquote ideal. Yeah, movie. Judy Dench plays a co- uh, older costume designer. Oh wow. Um, Kate Hudson plays. I'm Kate Hudson plays a journalist. Sophia Loren plays Guido's mother. Oh wow. Fergie plays the prostitute. Yeah, and there, so yeah, there, there's like a producer who's who's uh, Italian, who's a man. So there's a few men like towards okay. the bottom, but the main, but it's like the main cast. It's yeah, DDL, and then all the women and and uh, in his life. I should now rewatch this just to see. I just want to see now. Yeah. But um, but the musical, the original musical was way more yeah, we well received. Yeah, yeah. And nine is kind of one of those examples of uh um the aftermath of Chicago. And it's like seven right. years later, but Chicago yeah. was such a big hit critically and financially, and they're like, We gotta make more of those. No, movie, movie. Um, yeah. Well, movie movies that are adaptations of stage musicals. Yes. But it's so funny to, to say this. Eight and a Half is a movie that's turned into a stage musical that's turned back into a yeah. movie. It's like Hairspray. Hairspray was that way. Oh, ha- right, yeah. yeah Hairspray was a movie and then became yeah. a musical, became a big musical. And then we became a movie, the, movie yeah, again. Yeah. yeah, so it happens. <laughs> um, um, but uh, speaking of that, there's been a huge list of movies that have been directly influenced by this. Yes. I mean, I just wrote down a couple of my favorites. Um or like a couple that I think are, are, are key. Uh, Day for Night by you know Truffaut, mm-hmm. All That Jazz, which I know you really love by Bob Fosse, Fosse uh, Stardust Memories, Woody Allen, mm-hmm. Living in Oblivion, which was last week's episode, and the list just goes on and on and on. There's a Fassbender one. Um, it's, 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 it's a long list. Tim yeah. Burton, Terry Gilliam, and David Lynch, and according to IMDb, Eight and a Half is Lynch's favorite movie. I'm not sure yeah. if that, I'm not positive about that because I know how much he references Wizard of Oz, yeah. but according to IMDb, but those three, again, Burton, Gilliam, Lynch, have cited Fellini as a direct influence as well. Yeah. And Scorsese became friends with Fellini later in his life, as did his parents. Um, and Scorsese even did a Charlie Rose interview in 1993 after Fellini's passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a few things that I want to highlight. So he said Mean Streets was heavily inspired by Eva Tiloni. Um, like like mm-hmm. he, like there was a direct reference, not, yeah. not just, oh, his work has influenced all of my yeah. know, films. Uh, and he also was asked... Do you think Eight and a Half is his most personal film? And Scorsese's answer was on the surface, which I love. But he, but his argument was that Eight and a Half pushed cinema ten yeah. light years further. Mm-hmm. And he, the only thing he could really compare it to was when Bergman made Persona, and 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 as a director, he like just jumped to another level. Yeah. Right? Um, and he was like, yeah, he was just like, it's crazy. Uh, but his, he was asked by Charlie Rose about Fellini's contribution to filmmaking, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing to mm-hmm. a certain extent. He said Griffith gave us the vocabulary. And then you have directors who take that and go to another level. Explore what film can do that no other art form can. This is Fellini. Mm-hmm. So I love that. But I, what also finds me fa- what I also find fascinating. This is 1993. This is Charlie Rose show, mm-hmm. which was a big, you know, big interview interview talk show, right? Yeah, he's probably a person now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, like, yeah, people people just watch this on cable. And yeah. It's Scorsese talking about Fellini. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, that wouldn't happen nowadays. Like, 
you know, yeah, like a big, Talk, yeah. yeah, you know, like he's spending an hour talking about Fellini, Fellini yeah, yeah. the works of Fellini, which yeah. I love, and I, I'm like, yeah. like, I'm excited that this exists, but like it just was fascinating to me, like, oh, that how times have the, changed, yeah, thirty years ago, that, that, yeah. that does not exist. I mean, we do have things like this on the on online, yeah, yeah. So I think that's kind of where it's moved mostly, but yeah, know, it's not yeah. prime time, right? Thing, right? Yeah. You just turn on cable, like I could see my grandparents like just turning on the Charlie Rush show. Yeah. Like, Wait, Scorsese's talking about Fellini. like they would have no context of yeah, what yeah. is going on, but they would watch it. Because, yeah, you know, because Charlie, you know, they liked you know Charlie Rose's interviews. Yeah. So, uh, but anyways, that is all I have for the aftermath. Would okay. you like to move on to what worked? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, the style of the movie works incredibly well. I mean, Mastriani is fantastic and as guido and the cast the cast is great i like i like um uh um claudia who plays the film starring them she's in kind of the least and doesn't have as much to do but uh um anuk uh ami as louisa and sandra milo Bar- all, all of them are like really just a great kind of cast to round out the movie um and yeah it's it's this the f- it's all vibes of of of, of, the, of the film. <laughs> the so it's, it's, it's it's all vibes, man. Don't try to understand it. But feel it, feel it baby. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think I think it's, it's but 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 going off that point, I I think because of that, like 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 I like I, like, I, like I just highlighted that one minor moment in the cemetery scene, right? Yeah. But that touched me, and like I can't imagine how many people. Like, yeah. There's just minor there's moments, moments that, yeah, become, exactly, that, become, that would be personal to any viewer. Yeah. Like like that somebody else could have a completely different, you know, person. This, this is like one of those movies yeah. where like, it's, it's all story, no plot. Right. And people, where's the plot of this movie? Yeah. Like he's got to like do this to do this. And then like, you don't really need any of that yeah. with this. It's, it's, you're following this character mm-hmm. and you're following kind of a, you're following a flawed character sure. in a way. Is it you're, complicated? You're, 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 compl- follow, you're following like, you're following like, you can almost argue an unlikable character, yeah. character to some extent. No, no, you can, yeah, 100%. Uh, because of the way he treats the women in his life. Yeah. Um, but Fellini is aware of that, is the thing. Yeah. Like, he knows he's a dick. But not only that, he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, this is me. I, and I, I respect the hell out of that. He's, he's not sugarcoating it. He's no. like, he's like, yeah, I'm a bastard. I'm making yeah. these mistakes. And I, like, again, kind of my point earlier is like, he, he's almost like, through the film, well, Guido through his film, and then yeah. Fellini through. Guido is exploring like, wait a second, how, why am I behaving the way that I am? And I, th- yeah. I really do think that that is a very important first step to growth. I don't, because yeah. otherwise you're just going to keep repeating the cycles. I right? agree. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, but I think, like you said, yeah, the, that, uh, the, well, and we, we haven't really touched on the style of it much. Um, yeah. Cause but like Fellini's, the way Fellini, and I, I think this goes back to that Scorsese quote, right? Because he took the vocabulary of film and just took it to a whole other level. Like his mm-hmm. wide, his wide shots, those long like mm-hmm. shots. Like we'll follow somebody in the background, right? And then we're just gonna end, and we just land on a close up of somebody that wasn't yeah. in the foreground before, you know? And, and and the way that he would direct all these extras is just fascinating. To yeah. Me because if you do this kind of scene, well, they don't even really do scenes like this much anymore. But you do this kind of scene in America, you got the second AD, second second yeah. AD, you got the second AD. Throwing people in the background, the yeah. director's not even focused on that. But Fellini's like every single part of my frame is like a moving piece. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think I think that more than shows. Um, and the way the way like him and his editor like transition from scene to scene, especially when they're transitioning from reality reality to, yeah. to the past to the fantasy world, and mm-hmm. and sometimes it's so hard to kind of tell the difference between them. Um, and I think that's part of the fun of the movie, right? Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's, it's all one big combination of everything of those three things of the of the past the present the conditional future in a way um it's all there um 
Yeah, just like yeah, the costume design, like his glasses, like the kind of the tilt down with the I glasses. I love his shades, man. All those times. Like it's really it's really just like cool. One thing I never noticed until the commentary, but he, uh he when anytime he references his nose, he's lying. So it's like a, uh-huh. a bit to Pinocchio. Yeah. But in that scene where Barbara Steele's dancing, it cuts to him and he's got the long no- like a it's like a, yes, he he like does. a fake plastic nose. Fake plastic nose. Yeah. So I thought that was funny. And and one of them says Ro- Rose Rosilia or Rosilla, um or Rosalind, what their names are the actual names in real life. I see. Um, oh, Roselia, yeah, yeah, Roselia. Yeah, yeah. Um, Roselia is like she mentions Pinocchio during the harem scene mm-hmm. at one point. He's like, "What are you doing up there?" And she's, and I think she said something about Pinocchio or whatever. I'm just, yeah. So, so yeah, it's that's a, and so yeah, lying. It's, it's like it's always brought up with him. It's like because again, yeah. Louisa says it like, "Don't lie to me." Like, and, and in that scene that we were talking about earlier, the cafe scene or like mm-hmm. the outdoor. Yeah. yeah, he's tapping his nose when he's when he's like, oh, I, yeah, that's yeah. not that's not my mistress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then like he says, she says like, don't lie to me. Yeah. Like, and, and then he proceeds to lie to her. Right. Oh no, that's that ended a long time ago. Like that's it's completely no worry about that. When like literally yeah. the first time we've seen her, like they were having they were hooking up basically. Yeah, role playing. Role playing. Role playing. Yeah, playing yeah. Um, but one thing I find interesting about her 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 introduction mm-hmm. is the train arrives right and and she gets on the, off the wrong side of the train but he doesn't know that yet yeah and there's kind of a, almost a moment i don't know if i want to say relief but there's a moment where he's like oh she didn't show up yeah and he's kind of like not not his wife um his, carla. His mistress, yeah, yeah. His wife, carla he kind of has that moment of relief like oh now i don't have to hide her now i don't have to deal with this and then the train moves away and she's there with all of her bags <laughs> <laughs> all of her luggage <laughs> and he's like son oh, of a yeah, and then he, but then he immediately looks back and he's like, yeah. "Okay, anybody here that can?" Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think so. Terry Gilliam kind of. Well, we can just kind of lead into this. this yeah. Because one of the, you know, like we mentioned with those letterbox reviews, and, and I think even at the time, he was kind of getting grilled for like the misogyny of the movie and, and yeah. the sexism. Um, and I think if you want to label Fellini a sex, uh, you know, a misogynist, yeah. Uh, if you look at that Playboy interview, you could pull some quotes. So yeah. I can't. I'm not going to say that that he wasn't. Didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. Because he makes some arguments there that I was like, well, okay. Um, but. I think the movie's more complex than that. And I think, I don't think it's, con- like we said, I don't think it's condoning or necessarily critiquing yeah. Guido. It's just like presenting him as he is. And it's like up to us to yeah. decide how we feel about his behavior. Um, but again, I appreciate that he didn't sugarcoat it or or like make a direct stance of like, you know. Yeah. And I think, again, it's it's how you read it. I don't read like like the harem scene. Yeah. I mean, I don't, that's a, so that was Gilliam's, sorry, not to interrupt, but that yeah, was yeah. Gilliam's main point. He's like, oh, this is a fantasy, right? This is not. fantasy, yes. Yeah, yeah, this is not, he doesn't actually believe that this is going to be a realistic thing that would happen yeah. to him. Like, this is a fantasy. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. when I watch it, I go like, wow, this guy has some weird right. fantasies. Because yeah. this just sounds like, like you, you're, it, to me, it reveals that he is a bad character. Correct. It doesn't condone right. that. Oh, this is what this is right. This is what I want. It's it's like it doesn't paint him as a good guy during the the mm-hmm. scene. So it's like, and, and maybe people can take it as that. Like, as they'll say, it's like funny because the way they're like, I mean, the kind of moment when like they have the mu- the mutiny. I guess the mutiny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then they also the rebellion. Like, yeah. They they send the lady up when yeah. she has to do the song or everything. Yeah, the way he shoots certain scenes were like Guido's Guido's in the dark. In like certain moments, like um, it's when Claudia and him they drive up towards the end, and like Claudia's all like lit, and Guido's just like completely in darkness, mm-hmm. and they do a little bit that too in the harem scene where they have certain characters in darkness and some kind of a little bit of light on it. But yeah, the way they light it is oh, great. Oh, the yeah, the, the lighting in this yeah. is amazing. Yeah, um, but no, I just I think it's a fantasy. But I guess that, yeah. that transitions into what didn't work um, yeah, yeah. about it. And yeah, you could you could argue that, but again, it's it depends on how, what you take from it. Is right. that I think. 
I think Guido is not a a character to praise, I guess right, you could right. say. Um, he's a character to try to understand. Yes. Um, but he is a complex individual. And again, like I said, I don't think Fellini, like I said, Fellini doesn't paint him as this mm. hero on a pedestal. Yeah, and, and I think Fellini's working some of his own stuff yeah. out through through this character. And, 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 I, and I respect that he put that out for yeah. the world to critique. Yeah. Like, you know how many directors would have, like, you know, like uh, not sensitized. Not the, they would have, they would have like watered it down. Yeah, yeah. You know, but he's like, no, no, I'm gonna make this guy a bastard. And again, I, I, think, I, to... I, I think the key scenes are with yeah. him and Louisa when they're arguing. Is that yeah, that yeah. paints the picture of like, no, she is in the right with all this right. stuff, and he is just like. Yeah. And his next film, uh, Juliet of the Spirits, again stars his wife. Yeah. It's kind of dealing with his extramarital affair. So it's got in a way, it's like his cinematic um, uh, yeah, ap- yeah. apology. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. To her. Um. But did uh, anything not work for you? No, I think this is a near perfect movie. In, yeah, in my opinion, I kind of agree as well. Um, and like, yeah, now that I've seen it so many times, uh, I like I said, I, I just keep coming back to it. And I keep finding new things, or like a different moment will like hit me. I'm like, oh wait, I never noticed that. You know yeah. what I mean? And like, it's a very, very yeah. layered text. Yeah, it's dense. Well, the fr- like the, yeah. the text is yes, but the, also the frames are dense. Yeah, like well, I, would, I mean, layered. Yeah, like the movie right. is a text. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a layered yeah, text. Yeah, so Especially like, in yeah. Like just pay attention to people in the background. And like, yeah, yeah. Everybody's doing something. You know, it's like it's wild. It, it's just it, it. So on a technical level, which we, we again we we were just like now uh, talking about, it's like it, 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 like like Scorsese said, he just jumped to a whole other level. Like he yeah. pushed cinema to a whole other level. So it's insane. No, I agree. Um, but yeah. So no, I don't cool. think. Yeah, I think. I I mean, like I said, it w- it was on my 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 fake uh, yeah. sign sound ballot. So uh, yeah. I would argue that all those on that list are are, are perfect. Are perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we can move on to film facts? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, <laughs> sorry. So Must Fellini, be a good film fact. So Fellini had quit smoking before production, uh-huh. but it started it up again pretty much immediately. Um, but he didn't want to, he, he didn't want the like temptation in his pocket, right? So he mm-hmm. had, he had a stage hand, which they call, I guess that, I guess that would be a grip, you know, in America. Yeah. but he would have him, <laughs> a stage hand who was tasked with supplying the quote unquote poet's package, yeah. uh, which was a, pack of smokes and uh because he didn't want to carry smokes but apparently he would he if he ran out of that package he'd be like hey, anybody got a smoke anybody yeah, so he didn't really necessarily adhere to that rule yeah but i do i do find this funny because uh the only time i think in my life that i've ever genuinely considered like picking up smoking was when i made my feature film mm-hmm. i think it's just like the stress of set it's you're like you're like okay maybe that like, calm me down for a minute yeah you know yes it's gonna long-term damage but um so and also when you see the cam- the entire camera team and like the entire grip team like taking their smoke break you're like wait those guys seem chill like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I get it like I get that aspect but yeah Fellini so his uh, his um his quitting of his tobacco habit did not last for long yeah um but he also so another uh, film fact he nicknamed uh, Marcello Snapperaz during the filming of La Dolce Vita so that line where he calls himself Old Snapperaz in, mm. in the mirror is kind of a uh, sort of end joke between yeah. Them. Uh, there was a piece of paper attached to the camera that said, Ricordate que un film comico, which mm-hmm. means, remember, this is a comedy. Uh, on Monday, August 13th, 1962, I found this this fascinating. Uh, there was a big fire in the Instituto Luch where all the film was stored. Oh, so again, this is in August. No. They started shooting in May. Yeah. Uh, they decided not to bother Fellini with this information until they knew for sure if they were going to have to start the whole movie over. Luckily, the film survived. But could you imagine... <laughs> Like that, because they they wrapped in October, so it's like that been wild. He yeah. probably wouldn't have made the movie. I don't even have made the movie. It's like he, yeah, or like that kind of curse. Maybe he'd have been like, ah, good, I'm good. Yeah, I, I worked I worked my stuff out. I don't need to end this. I did it for me. I didn't know how to end it anyway. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's not about doing it for everybody else. It's been working, working out for me. Um, but yeah, that's all I had for uh, film facts. Would you like to gotcha. move on to yeah, awards? Yeah. Cool. Awards. So the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress with limited scenes that kills it. And back to my point earlier, I think this is a tough question to answer because of Fellini's memorable bit players and the way that Coens or you know PTA do that, where they fill their worlds with such fascinating characters. Who, well, who doesn't count here? Uh, as in they have more scenes than... I mean, I think Louisa for sure. Louisa doesn't count. Yeah, I think I, I would argue does, most does, of the main women. Does, I, so Gloria does not count here. Barbara Steele. I I mean, she, what she's probably in how many how, what, how many scenes do you usually limit this to? Uh, like four or five. Okay, I do I do have, Barbara Steele is one of my nominations, but I didn't think about the fact that because I know she's the da- she's the dance sequence, yeah, and she's, then in, she's in that when he first arrives at the resort because that's when yeah. she meet, he meets her. And he, I think they, they they meet up after the dance, yeah. and she's in she's, she's in, in the harem. Yeah. Well, oh, is she? she yeah, she is. Yeah, and then she's okay. in the ending, I think. So she can't. Yeah. So, so no, not her. But that was my, one of my nominations. Shit. Damn, damn, that was my nomination. Oh. So a, well, in that case, I'm going to nominate the cardinal because I think played by Carl Tito Massini or Il Cardinale as he's credited. Um, uh, gotta, gotta throw my well, Italian in there. Let's go. Let's go, Cardinal. All right, cool. Because uh, Cla- Claudia, she's. I mean, she's in it, but like, yeah, that's true. Because yeah, she keeps like popping up, but she's not really like. There's yeah, not big yeah, dialogue right, scenes with her, yeah, except for towards the end. Um, she's like kind of like this haunting. Yes, yeah. yeah, like spectral angel. Right? Yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. Angel's probably a better way. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, like you know, it's yeah. like all that jazz where like yeah. he has Jessica Lange as kind of this like haunting. Yeah. Angel, or in in that case, it could be death or whatever mm-hmm. that's haunting him. Um. So you cool? Are you so cool? Let's go to Cardinal. I mean, I would also want to nominate um, because this guy, the guy that dances uh, at the tower, um, apparently he was like a, a, a oh the guy who does the yeah, tap dance yeah, 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 yeah I yeah. want to nominate him as well uh, because apparently like Fellini had just seen him doing that or something and was like I gotta yeah. get I gotta get that guy. <laughs> okay, the other dude was was the uh, um, or is it the film critic? But he's also in a lot of scenes. Is too. he okay? Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, like. I mean, I think he's close to five. I mean, he has to be close to five, if not more. Okay. Because he's because he, he sees him in, when he when he wakes first wakes up. Yeah. He's at the he's at the and then immediately I love that like immediately right after it, he's hounding him again at the yeah. at the resort. Um, and then you know he has his big monologue at the end. I swear he pops up a couple more times though. Okay. Then let's let's go with the, the, the other, other other guy was like the clown guy that he's like. Oh, that guy, yeah, we count yeah. that guy, like the guy that intros the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah we could count that guy because um, he's only really in that scene. But we'll yeah. go with the Cardinal because that's, I think, yeah. a key moment. And key yeah, moments. again, I think he's a good visual metaphor for like that looming presence of, yeah, yeah. of that childhood, like um, you know, this, what Fellini yeah. called the scars of, yeah. of, of growing up in the church. You did um, wrong. Uh, the Annie Potts X Factor Award supporting actor actress that is the most memorable. So now that makes this category harder to uh, we discounted some people, but I want to nominate Louise uh, and Anouk Ami as that's Louise. my pick. Yeah. Anouk Ami, uh, but I, I think the critic deserves a like a discussion. Yeah, um, and I think you know, and, and various of the other ladies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she. I mean, like we said, Sandra she, Ma- Milo yeah. is, is Carla and Bar- yeah, uh, Barbara Steele. If we have Barbara Steele too, again, like her dancing scene, like that. It, it just yeah, instant star power. I, but, I just yeah, I just think with Louisa, I just think she has such strong scenes. Yeah. Yeah, like no, just without a doubt. with the argument scenes, it's like really great, and it, yeah. and it's what puts it what's really puts in perspective like the artists of taking stealing from their lives to tell their art, and mm-hmm. and how she says like you can say it on screen, but you can't say it to me. Yeah, and she's really the only one that calls him on his shit. Yeah, yeah. So and so I really yeah, yeah I think she was fantastic yeah. in this role. Yeah, and even like that moment at the end where he it's like it's in voiceover where he's yeah. like apologizing, but she has that moment at the end with him. Yeah, and that's a beautiful moment too. It's mm-hmm. like it's it, you really see like. Even though she's like only in that like second half of the movie, essentially, yeah, yeah. you see that like 
a rise and fall of like their relationship. Really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Uh, okay, so Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. I mean, I think you got to give it to Fellini, right? It's Fellini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the various reasons that we've mentioned throughout the episode. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like I mean, Mastriani is is amazing. As yeah, we and know, that performance is is like you know, but top this, notch, but. but this is like a just a. It, 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 it's it's a filmmaker's like dream in a way like it's the the filmmaking is always going to overpower the performance in this movie Fellini's filmmaking is just that incredible in this film that the the, the performances are just a part of the yeah. the tapestry of it all yeah um and so yeah that's why I think he has to take it home yep I agree all right, final questions. All right, so I proposed to you in the kitchen late night, late one night, that instead of recasting this film, we decide we 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 take a director. This could be alive or dead because we're essentially we're doing an alternate universe movie. So yeah. this is a a director who makes a film kind of in the vein of Eight and a Half about some point in their career, right? And then they, but they didn't make it, right? They, they didn't, didn't actually it. make this movie. We, we are pitching this, and yeah. and then we also would have to pick the lead who would play their stand-in, right? Uh, so if you want me to go first, I can. You go first. All right. Because I, I have, have yeah. Martin Scorsese. All right. Okay. Not only because he, and I know he sort of made his love letter with to cinema with Hugo, but this is a little different. Um, yeah. Uh, not only because of his, you know, how much he loved Fellini, but I think there was a very important part of his personal life and career that would be awesome to see him tackle on screen. And yeah. that was, you know, in the uh, mid to late seventies, uh, se- uh, mm-hmm. late seventies when he's dealing with his coke addiction uh, yeah. leading up to the production of Raging Bull. Uh, I think I would like to have seen him wait wait like a decade to make that. So he makes this in the mid to late eighties, mm-hmm. and it stars Griffin Dune, who Griffin, was in Griffin, after, Griffin Dunn, you uh, Griffin Dunn, yeah, yeah who's yeah. in After Hours, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because he kind of looks like Scorsese, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. If he had the beard, uh, but yeah. So I, I would I really like to see him tackle that more head on. I know I know he tackles it in Goodfellas to a certain extent, yeah. But uh, and maybe Wolf of Wall Street, you could argue. But I I. It, it, like that personal story of like, yeah, I was he because he was literally about to give up movie making, yeah, and and De Niro and and Schrader, and then they were like, we got to make this movie, we got to make Raging Bull. So yeah. I think going from New York, New York to that, leading to that, would be yeah. interesting. Okay, so, in an alternate universe. So my pick, it's a it's a it's it's one filmmaker, but it's kind of about a specific relationship, and this has been kind of in the in the film community of late this kind of these kind of stories but peter bogdanovich oh oh, i know where this is going and polly platt who was his wife um at a time and he basically left her while they were doing uh last picture show and they kind of came up together in the industry and it was kind of like this creative duo where she did a lot of creative stuff but she was just like production designer or costume designer credited but she was like essentially helping him produce his movies and i would find it fascinating to watch that dynamic play out on screen Mm -hmm. and if it be because they're probably making a fictional movie in the movie um but it's like you have that dynamic of him leaving leaving her for like civil shepherd but then you kind of have your warring factions kind of made between like the people who are on the on Polly's side and people on Peter's side. But then you're also have like, they, they continue to work together for two more movies after the affair happened. And after he left her, they had two more movies 
that were probably two of his also best films of his career because it was Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc, and Paper Moon. And she's on both of them. And I think it'd be cool to play that dynamic. So mm-hmm. I think with just by based on who's in a lot of his movies, I think for, for Peter's character, it'd probably be Ryan O'Neill yeah. is the thing. I think he'd be great in that. Um, I Throw think glasses on him. Yeah, I think for... Um, for Polly Platt's character, I would do Ellen Burstyn. Okay. Who was in Last Picture yeah, Show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then probably you just cast Sybil Shepherd as the Sybil Shepherd character that yeah. he yeah. leaves her for. Yeah. Um, in a way, Fellini did that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, so that works. And then like, and then, and then throw Burt Reynolds in there at some point. Cause he did two movies for, for Bogdanovich. Um, yeah, I would I would watch that movie, I'd especially watch. if it was like like you're in like say you're like you're doing like a last picture show type film, so you're out in the middle of Texas, you're on location, and with him it's like with Bogdanovich, it wasn't his debut, but it was kind of his early film, so you could play a lot of different things mm-hmm. that you're taking. Of um, another one I had was was Orson Welles, but Welles kind of did that with the other side of the wind, right, right. which we forget happened like yeah. it's insane to me that movie came out five years ago or six yeah five years was ago was it really that long ago it was five i mean years i know ago. i was living in kentucky still but like we had a new orson welles yeah. movie and no it felt like no one talked about yeah. it and it was good <laughs> i felt it was good um but yeah bogdanovich and polly platt is kind of the the the, yeah. the the filmmaking story i'd like to see in this kind of realm right of what to do because you could argue the whole thing of like Polly Platt trying to get her creative like stuff out there and how she's being play, being played second fiddle to Bogdanovich and you're like yeah, why he's on the rise and you're like but who has the power here and and she also came up with Bogdanovich and met all those directors right and she talked about how like some of them like weren't that weren't that quite nice to her because she was a woman but she was just as knowledgeable about things as the men were right and yeah, I think it's an interesting dynamic to play. Yeah, I, I'd see that movie. Yeah. Um, does, do you think this film fits with any other genres to move on to? Um, I mean, is it? Is it? A, it's a comedy. It's well, it's a comedy. <laughs> but is it? Is it a? Is it? Is it like a fictional biopic? Is is the thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, like it's making a movie for sure, but like, um, also, is it a divorce movie? That's fascinating. They don't they don't yeah. get divorced, yeah. but it's it's essentially the breaking up of a relationship. Yeah. Um in some way. There's elements of it. Um Yeah, I think I think that's possible. I mean it's it's a surreal a surrealist film. Yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, if you're looking at kind of genre, like yeah, it feels like it could be uh some of a divorce film. Because hmm. you're having a, you have the affair angle, yeah. you have the the breaking up and the being confronted about the affair and and some sort of I don't know if it's reconciliation but some sort of at the like ending at the end about it uh, with the, with the uh, the end, the film's ending. Right. Um, but yeah, I think I think it, that's kind of what it is. What about you? What do you, is there anything that you see? No, I think I mean yeah, I think that pretty much yeah. Rest it up. I mean it it is a hard I think it is a hard film to categorize like uh, you yes. know d- directly <laughs> put into a box. Yes. Um, but those are usually my favorites. So, yeah. How does this film fit with the months genre, which is movies on? Movie. I mean, I think we, we talked about different genres here, and this we've talked about the making of a movie with Living, Living in Oblivion. We've talked about the underbelly of, of the Hollywood industry with Sunset Boulevard. But this is more of the kind of subgenre of a director telling their story about 
their their career or love of movies. Even mm-hmm. though it's not, he doesn't really, like like Guido's not talking about like nineteen oh, fifties Hollywood. Those are the movies I love or whatever. But it, it's you're seeing a passion behind it is the thing. And like you said, it's a movie that everyone would, it would kind of be the template yeah. for those movies of of a director who's yeah. sorting or a creator sorting their life out through their art mm-hmm. and, and in I most cases I, through movies. Yeah, so and there's also quite a few of a screenwriters perspective, like adaptation, which we're yes. talking about later this month. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I think this is the template for all that. Like a, a creative within the industry, uh, like facing their, you know, their yeah. demons. On the the demons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but again, and like you said, it's like, it's literally the quintessential movie, uh, you know, yeah, uh, of that regarding a director's mindset. I feel yeah. Like. And, and nothing really done it before. Right. But a lot have done it after yeah. is the thing. Um, and yeah, I think it, I don't know if it really always asks the question. Maybe it kind of does. Is it all worth it? Is that he's losing things in his life for his art? Mm-hmm. I think he does ask himself that at yeah. the tower, but I don't know if it answered the film. It's not worth it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, is it worth trying to tell an honest movie if I yeah. can't be honest? Right. right. <laughs> is, the, is the thing. Um, so yeah, it, it, it still fall, it falls very much in that idea of what movies can, the mm-hmm. movies on movies genre and kind of what, yeah, what what they can do to you, and 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 how movies can be used as a form of therapy, um, either through watching or through yeah. creating. But I do think it's interesting. He was going to there like therapists both times. Yeah. So like, so I think not, that clearly also was a piece of this. Like he was yeah. like, okay, maybe I can, you know, I'm maybe not consciously, but he's like, yeah, he is pouring like his past and you know trying yeah. to trying to make sense of himself, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're all, we can all be confused at times and, and, yeah. and lost and have the imposter syndrome or not really, like I said, when you're in the middle of a screenplay and you're like, wait, where am I going? Like, what am I doing? Yeah. yeah. So I think, I, I think it's relatable in that way. Yeah, I agree. And it captured that really well. Yeah. Um. All right. Is that it? Yeah. We're done. All right. That's well, a wrap. That's a wrap on eight and a half. We finally, we, we did it. I hope our listeners are happy. I know, I know one is, uh, yeah. I don't think they'll be happy about my Star Wars comments. Old Snapper has himself. A- <laughs> um, but uh, but that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at sendationpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. Tell us what your favorite eight and a half ripoff is. I guess you could say, I don't know. I want to. We want to hear what you got to say about that. If you're new listener to the show or you're a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so. You can subscribe to the Nation Podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. These reviews kind of help spread the word about us. It, get, it helps kind of gain more exposure. So just you giving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, saying, this is a great show, I love it, that will essentially increase our chances to be seen by more people. So that's... What you can do for us to help us out, you also to you can also join our Patreon because the Patreon helps kind of fund the show and helps us kind of keep putting out content. Um, we're talking about uh, our favorite movies of 2022 finally on the recent episode of our Patreon, so be sure to check that out. Um, and we have another one kind of planned in, later in the month as well, so do that if you can. It's one dollar, five dollar, ten dollars if you subscribe per like one dollar per month, five dollar per, per month, and ten dollar per month. Yeah, and how many episodes? There's quite a few episodes now. Yeah, there's yeah. like nine episodes. Yeah. So now you can get your back catalog of all these episodes you can listen to yeah. that you haven't seen. You, you can hear David and me talk about uh, Nirvana concert films. You can talk about music and lyrics. Talk about Richard Gere and noir films. You can hear me go solo on Elvis Presley comeback special. That's worth the ten bucks. There's a one. lot there, ladies and gentlemen. So be sure to do that if you can, because that helps us out. And we appreciate everyone who's been a part of that so far. Uh, you're a part of the Nation family, and we thank you so much for that. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, TikTok, all the socials. Do it now. 
follow us and we'll and you can find out more about us. I don't know. Um, but David, thank you so much for joining me here in the apartment. Thank you for having me, man. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. We have a listen more episodes soon. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>